Nobody puts baby in a corner. You talking to me? You talking to me? To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> this is God. Who told you I was hot tonight? Uh, excuse me, miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk? Your hand is staining my window. You just put the law on my hands, and I'm going to break your heart with it. What kind of beer? Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? What? Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. Hello and welcome back to Movies for Life. I am your co-host, Brian Kuyper. And I am Michelle Egan. And hey, Michelle sounds as good as I do now. I know, right? Yeah, we both have... Do you like uh, my microphone? Do I we sound all have these, more professional now? We have awesome fancy mics. Well, they're not that fancy. They're cool, though. They work and they're affordable and they're pretty that's awesome. That's right. The Blue Snowball. Yeah, I don't have like the pop curious. filter on this or anything yet, so if it sounds... A little bit not as good as Brian's. I'm working on it. I'll, I'll get a better setup here eventually. It sounds really good. There's I can notice a legitimate difference just yeah. in our conversations here. Boy, uh, it has been an interesting <laughs> evening already. Michelle has I revealed things laughing. to me that I never expected to hear. That sounds really bad. What I mean is about the movie that she's bringing to the table today. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to have this discussion. This I think I is... need to have this this discussion. I need my thoughts. I don't know. I got to work out my thoughts on this because, yeah, this is weird. This is interesting because, okay, this is another Forever Favorites episode in which we have two that we set up from the beginning of the, of the show of our five movies that each of us brought to the... Well, I brought six because I cheated. Because you cheated, um, yeah. Yeah, for those of you who are new to our show. And so these were the five movies that both of us, each of us, thought were always in our top favorite films. They would always end up somewhere in the top five, 10, 15, 20 movies that we always return to and always love and all these sorts of things. Yeah. Well, what's funny is this was the scariest slot for me because I hadn't seen the movie that I picked in, I don't know, maybe 15 years. And I hadn't seen your choice in even longer than that. Okay. And I used to watch the movie that I picked all the time. And I thought it's been a long time. Am I going to have the same kind of gut reaction, same emotional response that I did when I first saw the film. And in my case, it was a resounding yes. And it was even more so than it was the first time I first times I saw it. We'll get into that when we talk about Magnolia. But yeah, with Magnolia, I was like, yes, this absolutely 100% confirmed itself as one of my forever favorite films. And it punched me in the gut yeah. this time around. And with mine, I started to think, why did I pick this one? Which my choice for this is uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I started to kind of question why I even picked it as a forever favorite in the first place. And I kind of went back to our first episode and I listened. Okay, what did I say about it then? I think I was mostly, I really liked the the actors and the way that they played. I love the filming style of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 70s, very realistic filming style that really gets to me. But when you kind of 
look back at the story, there's there's a lot of things that I'm not okay with in some ways that I don't gravitate to that kind of stuff anymore. I have a different outlook. And so like, I still like the movie. I think it's a good mm-hmm. movie, but it's a movie that has flaws, definitely. And that is not, we say it's the movies are perfect, but they're they're not really. No, there's, there's always, there's always there's something There's really to it. no such thing as a absolutely perfect film. I mean, there's Some tremors. Some close. But... <laughs> well, yes, there there is tremors. I'm also thinking now, too, that, you know, you can, you can like something while recognizing the flaws, obviously, and mm-hmm. acknowledging them. But, but I also think that's a good thing that there's movies like this to where, like, it is regarded as a great movie it is on like you know afi list and everything it's like been regarded as like one of those culturally historically significant movies Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of discussion i think that needs to happen and that's that's a sign of a good movie too that it brings up those issues and it makes those discussions happen which we will get into (laughs) yeah and we're actually going to break with our tradition (laughs) oh is this a good idea (laughs) there's a lot happening right now i tell you this is seismic shift right (laughs) In our show, this is <laughs> this is this is Scream entering the horror universe, right? No, not really. Oh it's not going to be quite that. We're just uh, we usually go with my pick first and then Michelle's second, but we are going to switch that, and because we both felt that Magnolia was maybe a better way to end the show, and I'm more excited to talk about Magnolia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't want to get too much into talking about Magnolia right now, okay. so yeah. I'll ask. Yeah, that. Yeah. I'll try to remember to ask that question when we get to that movie. Let's start okay. with uh, with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, so, what's your story with this movie? Well, um, mostly it was that um, okay. I took a class in college called Film and Literature, and it was a really interesting class that I absolutely loved. And what we did in that class was we looked at three books and their respective movie adaptations and studied them together. So the ones that we did, we did um, Cold Mountain, which was like, whatever. I didn't even really like that one that much. Yeah, I've never read it. I haven't seen the movie either, actually. It's, I was like, why do we pick this? There's so many better pairings that you could have picked for this or whatever. Uh, then we also did Heart of Darkness and Apocalypse Now. Yeah, that, would, that would be an super, interesting and fascinating uh, discussion. Yeah. yeah. Difficult was, one, too. Well, I was actually, it was actually kind of cool because I had already studied Heart of Darkness in my AP mm-hmm. English class in high school, like two years before. So I had, I think I felt like I had a little bit of a, a one up on my classmates who hadn't read it before. Because, yeah, that is a dense, like, tough oh, that book, book yeah. to, to And the movie through. is pretty dense itself, you know. Yeah, exactly. In a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was super interesting. And then we also did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I already liked the movie. I'd seen the movie in high school and was kind of a fan of it, but I hadn't read the book. So it was just, it was interesting to, to study them both together and to look at that and to, to finally read the book and get a little bit more of kind of the backstory that you don't get from the movie about some of the characters. And it helped me appreciate the movie a lot more and helped me see things, mainly like the Christ allegory, which is a mm-hmm. lot more present in the book than it is in the movie yeah and so i do like this movie i want to keep saying like we just had like a whole discussion off off mic about how i was like a little bit hesitant even calling this a forever favorite because there's some reservations that i have about the movie i appreciate it but at the same time it's um it's kind of racist and misogynistic the book is very misogynistic Mm -hmm. and so um i had a different approach like we were talking again before um about how to talk about this movie with two big questions that i think really could cover everything that this movie is addressing and so um are we supposed to give like a plot or whatever do y'all know one flew of the cuckoo's nest come on the plot is fairly limited in this movie it's not really about a 
plot summary no. kind of thing. Really, neither of these movies are plot, plot movies. Driven. But if anybody doesn't know, it's Jack Nicholson as Randall McMurphy. He had been on a prison work farm and he's being sent to, um, I don't even know the name of the hospital or whatever, some kind of um, a mental hospital. I can't remember. To, to be evaluated because it's basically he's basically gaming the system because he doesn't want to work on the the prison farm anymore and that's why he gets sent there to be evaluated and there he meets the uh, the infamous nurse ratchet who runs the ward that he's assigned to and he tries to become the savior for the rest of the patients who are kind of under her rule she runs the ward with a very uh, uh, an iron fist basically she is very controlling of everything that they do i was gonna say the, i was gonna say the ending but we'll get there yeah we can reveal the ending when we actually discuss that section but i'm excited to discuss this and talk about it okay so the two questions that i had for this movie that i think really kind of encapsulates everything about it is mcmurphy really helping the guys on the ward with what he's doing and then also is nurse ratchet really an evil character those are good places to start because it helps us to get past you know some of the surface elements of the story i think sure to really dig into what the characters are about and what their motivations really are yeah. So first of all, like another reason why I can't super love this movie, Mick Murphy is not a good guy. <laughs> not entirely. Right. I completely agree with you. I mean, his story about why he's in prison. Why he's in prison. He's a 38 year old man. He's in prison for statutory rape of a 15 year old. Mm hmm. And then the whole discussion that he has with the doctor and his like little entrance interview with him about him justifying that is like, that's gross and that's wrong. And I can't completely be on your side, you know, and you kind of that's at the very beginning of the movie. You almost forget about that as the movie goes on. It's like because he's so charming and lovable to the guys. And I, I do like the way that he treats the patients on the ward. Like as soon as he gets there, he never really talks down to any of them. He treats them like normal people, which is what they are, you know, but other people would treat them as crazy you know Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word and not really respect them he just talks to them as if they're just regular guys that he's meeting on the street yeah for one thing i love that he never he never makes fun of billy stutter no the first person that's a good point that's a good yeah Mm -hmm. the first person that he talks to is bromden Mm -hmm. which is kind of cool if you notice like the the connection that they have later on he's the first person that he approaches on the ward from the way his character is portrayed as like kind of khaki and and out there like you think he would think that he's better than them but he recognizes that he's not yeah i think that that is one of the things that and also the fact that nicholson plays him the way he does mm-hmm. and nicholson is an undeniably charismatic and engaging person on screen yes There's i love no him doubt in the movie. about it yeah. you know he's great um, in the role so that maybe kind of even undermines a little bit of what the book was going for <laughs> though <laughs> you know yeah. I, I it's been a while since i've read the novel um, yeah, I haven't read it since college. I remember a lot of it. Same for me. Same for me as well, actually. So there's some interesting things just in how Nicholson performs the character. But I think it works for what the movie is trying to do, I think. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about McMurphy, is he really helping these people on the ward or is he harming them? Is he making things worse for them? Because yeah. I think that's a really legitimate question to have. You know, when we're talking about things like, you know, even the group sessions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. 
that he just looks at this as all, pardon me for just throwing the word out, insane, that what they are doing to try and talk these things out, this is stupid. This is not going to help anything. Yeah. Whereas watching a ball game or going fishing will. But will it really? That's that's yeah. kind of what made me think of that because the, a big thing, like we said before in the book, is the Christ allegory is that he's seen as Jesus, basically, mm-hmm. in this movie. Mental health is so much more in the forefront now. It just kind of made me realize, is what he's doing, it's not really helping them. It gets down to Billy, specifically. Billy Bibbit, played by Brad Dorff, who my am absolutely in love with i adore him so much in this mm-hmm. movie i think billy is probably my favorite character in the movie oh for sure entirely yeah the one i think is the most sympathetic Dorif, of course plays him beautifully mm. and you know and this was his first movie yeah well or at least for lloyd he's the character that i think i empathize with the most yeah and another thing because of that that kind of makes me dislike mcmurphy further right so go ahead you're going for the ending now right is well, that yes. what you're yeah. yeah so sorry for jumping all over the place in terms of the plot because we're gonna have to yeah we're gonna have to do that with magnolia too i just don't see how we're sure. gonna be able to talk about these movies without jumping around them mcmurphy is basically trying to get them to do quote-unquote normal things to make them better mm-hmm. at the same time that is ignoring the fact that a lot of these men have real mental issues that need to be dealt with in a more professional way. Whether or not they're actually doing that at the hospital or not, he is not doing any better. He knows that Billy tried to commit suicide before. Yep. Because he said that in a group session. Yes, it does help him, his encounter with Candy, you know, you know, getting laid for once. It makes him feel <laughs> yeah. a little bit better. It gives him a chance to stand up to Nurse Ratched. He loses his stutter for one line when yep. uh, she asks him if, you know, he's ashamed of what he's done. And he says, no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. But he still has very deep-seated issues that are not going to be solved with, you know, a one-night stand. That's the big issue. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. And which we find out because Nurse Ratched knows exactly. This is where <laughs> this is where the other question comes into play. Because this is one of her biggest points against her is yes. the scene that she knows exactly how to hit him to get her power back from them. That's been taken mm-hmm. away from this party. Um, I can explain everything. Please do. Explain everything. Er- er- everything. <laughs> Aren't you ashamed? No, I'm not. All right. You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother is going to take this. Um, um, well, you, you, you don't, don't have to t- 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 tell her, Miss Ratchet. I don't have to tell her. Your mother and I are old friends, you know that. Um, please no, no, don't, don't tell my mother. Don't you think you should have thought of that before you took that woman in that room? No, no. I, 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 I didn't. You mean she dragged you in there by force? She, 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 she did. Everybody did. Everybody? Who did? You tell me who did. 
Murphy. Miss Ratchet. Please don't tell me. Mr. Warren. My mother, please. Would you see that the men are washed and ready for the day? Miss Ratchet, please, please, please don't, don't tell my mother. Mr. Washington. Put Billy in Dr. No, Stevie's no. office. No, 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 Stay with him till no, the doctor arrives. No, 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 no. Move it. Come on, Ron. Get on. No. Yeah. 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 And the fact that it was able to work so easily on him to where he immediately completes suicide. Yeah. Like, that's where you kind of go, McMurphy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing with these guys. No, of course he doesn't. That's why I can't watch it and feel like them pretending to watch baseball, like we were saying, or going fishing. None of this is going to cure them. It's going to help them for the moment, I think, to feel better, to feel normal. But that's not that's not long term. That's kind of the big thing that I have with that part of the movie. Yeah. He's it, not really helping them mm-hmm. yeah and are there other elements throughout the film that are not helping them too obviously that is sort of the ultimate example yeah bringing in this this christmas party in, into the ward for one night that ultimately leads to the death of this young man i think initially the reaction would have been oh it's ratchet's fault that no, is dead. Not entirely. But, but she, she had a big I, hand in it. But not entirely, no. She has a part in it, yes. But she's also... I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Nurse Ratched is at no point does she lose her cool. She says measured. She tries to approach things from a, from a dispassionate place. I don't know that it's because she has a lack of compassion for these people. Mm-hmm. But maybe, I don't know. Another thing is, or is she just doing her job and she's, is she burnt out? I don't know. I mean, that's a possibility yeah. too. You know, <laughs> and her react. there's no doubt. She knows that she's pushing Billy's butt. Oh, yeah. She's fully aware of it. Does she think he will kill himself? I don't think so. No. Obviously, if she knows his mother, it's like your mother and I are close is the words she used. She probably has known Billy for a long time. Yeah. And may like genuinely care about this young man. And the way she goes about it is obviously. But he's the easy target in the group. Yeah. That she can go after. It's true. Uh, so she does know how to push his buttons too and so there's that digging into it a little bit that is part of the challenge as well i feel like i'm just talking and not really saying i know me too (laughs) yeah because it's like we just have to talk through our our thoughts on this because there's a lot of things where i can i can see it one way and i've seen people argue that you know again I can't keep repeating myself, the the Christ thing and the fact that that Nurse Ratched Mm -hmm. is evil. I can see both sides of it. I was like, no, no, he's not. I see the imagery that you're trying to go for. Like I said, there's a lot more imagery in the book. There's even, I remember specifically, there is a patient on the ward in the book that is always tied up against the wall like this with his arms out like he's on the cross. Michael Berryman. Yeah, Michael Berryman. He he has one shot like that. Yeah, where yeah. He, he's not tied up, but he's just like standing against the wall like that. Yeah, later in the film, he's on a he's like laying in a bed. And when um, McMurphy gets 
gets ECT for the first time. He's he asks for his crown of thorns, and then there's the imagery that we actually see in the movie uh, is them taking the pills, obviously, yeah. which is kind of like taking communion. Seafelt even opens he, his he mouth puts, and puts sticks out his tongue, and they put yeah. the tablet on his tongue. Yeah, it's very much a communion looking thing, and it, and I think it's supposed to be. You mentioned this before, but I completely agree that it's institutions. You know, it's an institutionalized religious kind of element. Ratchet and the nurse and the orderlies, they kind of represent any institution, any authority. Yeah. You know, in in this case, there's obviously the literal one there is the is the hospital, but I think there's also an element like this is the Catholic Church hierarchy yeah. kind of situation. Going with the Jesus metaphor, they would be the Pharisees or the chief priests, uh, the institutional religious establishment of of Jesus's time. But I think maybe it's like gov- at that time, you know, those hospitals were government institutions. You know, so I think there's mm-hmm. a government element in there too. I mean. This movie is is one of the big things that led to deinstitutionalization in places like California, and some people could argue that contributed to some prob- like the homeless situation, for oh, yeah. example. For sure. And so, I mean, there are things this movie is responsible for that it rarely has to answer for. You know, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and these are complicated issues. I'm not saying that I know the answers to them. No. I can't even pretend to know the answers to these but I think they're fascinating to talk about and discuss and to get into the open yeah and I think that's why that I've co- grown a little colder on this movie over I the know years. me too I'll share just briefly my yeah. my story of this I saw it for the first time I had heard about it for years uh, because speaking of Nurse Ratchet, my aunt looks remarkably like Louise Fletcher <laughs> awesome she it was, is, it was amazing in the movie by the way love yes, Louise Fletcher yes and Louise Fletcher wow <laughs> is yeah. she incredible? It's a, I mean, I have nothing but wonderful things to say about her performance for sure. Right. But she looks remarkably like Louise Fletcher. She's a registered nurse and she worked in, not in a psychiatric situation, but in like substance right. uh, rehabilitation. So after she got her RN, she would refer to herself as Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was, so I had heard about this movie for a long time and I finally saw it in high school. Then I revisited visited it in college. I really was struck by the movie. This was one of the first movies where it felt like I'm seeing a real movie. You know what I mean? Something that really has a lot of substance to it a grown-up movie sure. and i had seen others of course but this was one of those that was really felt important and i read the book in college not on a sci- any kind of assignment or anything i just felt like reading the book uh, i did that a lot <laughs> that's how i read a clockwork orange as well not because okay. it was a sign just because it was something i wanted to read so about i can't remember when it was it was when my wife and i were first married in the uh, it must have been around 2003 2004 somewhere in there we we started watching the AFI list, and so we watched Cuckoo's Nest. We were watching them more or less in order, so we had seen some other movies that were like amazing. We thought, and we got to Cuckoo's Nest, and it was just like, hmm. it's okay, yeah, <laughs> it's good, it's good. I understand why people like it, but it didn't sing for us, and, that, and that's the word that I saw in in a review on Letterbox from someone. This I like this movie. I understand it's a good movie. I get it. It just doesn't sing for me. It doesn't have the same emotional impact that it once did for me. 
And there are a few others I feel that way about as well. But hearing that it was also, and that's not exactly what you're saying, but that you have just changed. The movie is the same as it ever was, but yeah. as we grow and get older and experience more life and watch more movies, you know, our, our perceptions of movies change. Sure. And that's why even using our term forever favorites is a toughie, yeah. you know? Because it can always some, change. It can always change. And I hadn't actually watched the movie in a few years but mm-hmm. it's it was one that was kind of just always on my mind it's one of those that always fascinates me when i watch it i just have different thoughts about it now than i did before i wasn't thinking about it in the same ways that i'm thinking about it now mm-hmm. but i was still fascinated with it like i said i love yeah. the the filming style of it uh, milos Forman, i think did a beautiful job with it i love the fact that there's not a lot of music in the movie there is music and scenes like like the fishing scene it feels very realistic and the scores it is used is very unique yeah. It's, they use, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's folk music. It uses a saw, like a literal, you know, someone playing a saw with a violin bow. Oh, wow. People have often mistaken it for a theremin. Okay. Because it's a it's sort of that whistly sounding mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but that is actually, you know, like a saw you cut wood with, <laughs> you <Wow>. know, <laughs> being played with being played with a violin bow and, and bent to different pitches. It's a, and it's, it's only used yeah. sparingly mm-hmm. in the movie and like... It, yeah. when it needs to be but very the rest of the movie moments. feels very realistic there's a couple of shots that I'm always just enamored with in a way that I think that's really good one for some reason is the shot of when Nicholson is first getting to the hospital and they're taking the handcuffs off of him yeah just the angle that's chosen and mm-hmm. the handheld nature of it it's looking up at him as he's looking up at the other patients in the ward that are watching him I don't know there's something about that shot the one especially I think that really gets to me is when it's Bromden, McMurphy, and Cheswick. They're all waiting to get the ECT and they're dragging Cheswick away. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That shot just gets to me. The look on Nicholson's face and, Mm. again, the handheld nature of it and Cheswick screaming. That super gets to me. But then there's also, like, at the end, after the party, after um, Candy has gone into the room with Billy, that long shot that holds on Nicholson's face Mm -hmm. as he's, like, falling asleep. He's He's going to escape after the party with Candy, but he has to wait, obviously, until they're done. It holds on him and so many different facial expressions. In all honesty, I think that shot shot is the one that earned him the Oscar. I think so. Because so much of it is, it wasn't typical Nicholson at the time, but it became typical Nicholson. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like shouty Al, you know, sure. when we talk about Al Pacino. <laughs> okay. it, it be, yeah. What he did in Cuckoo's Nest is not that far removed from Jack Torrance. You know, it feels like Nicholson. You know, we get mm-hmm. it. We get that version of Nicholson. And it was new. That was not what he had done before that. Uh, Five Easy Pieces is so vastly different from this, you know, for example. And I adore Nicholson as an actor. This is not to disparage Nicholson at all. I think he was just given roles because he was so strong in this role. Yeah. But that shot where he's just sitting there with, you know, the bottle of rum, I think, and just everything that's going on in his face during that whole time, it's like, this is really really takes it to a next level. You can see 
five different emotions and facial expressions just mm. in this i don't even know how long it is probably 20 yes. 30 seconds yeah i don't know for sure and either, it's but just it feels so it feels longer than that even yeah I mean, it just it just really holds on him really allows him to be yeah and i i like that a lot milos foreman was a master filmmaker what he does is is quite remarkable i'm a big fan of his work there's nothing that i'm trying to disparage about the film it's just it doesn't connect with me on the I same know. way it once <laughs> did and foreman's work is incredible every performance from jack nicholson and louise fletcher on down to michael berryman you know standing against <laughs> the wall in a couple of shots are impeccable and outstanding yes. i mean this is a murderer's row of great character actors. And that's what I love watching. I love mm-hmm. seeing them and all the different personalities and characters they create. They're just, they're so fascinating to watch to me. Just, like I said before, like just yeah. kind of watching them play in these roles and really sinking their teeth into them and getting into it. It's, I think it's wonderful to watch an actor be able to do that. I just love Cheswick yeah. too. Whenever I see him, I always think of Carrie because he's <laughs> Carrie's English teacher. He's beautiful. Right. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. I hate that guy. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I really like him as an actor. And then Danny DeVito as as Martini, Martini. is so f- <laughs> he's just so uh, funny. He's, he's so, so funny. different. He's so quiet. He's so different yeah. than he is known for. He's sort of known as this sort of brash, loud roles that he plays. And this is right. just like I, I want a dime. I want to. No, I just my my favorite him. my favorite thing is when McMurphy first gets there and he says to Martini, he's like, "You like looking at other people's cards because they're playing cards." Yes, yes. And that's all Martini says. He just goes, "Yes." Yeah, <laughs> I love, I, that's, I, I love that. Perfect. Some of them you wouldn't necessarily know. I mean, Cheswick was played by uh, Sidney Lassick, and then you have uh, William Duell, who plays uh, Seafelt, mm-hmm. who would you would recognize? Vincent Schiavelli. Yes, God. He, and he was in a lot of, uh, of Foreman films. He's he has one of the first scenes in Amadeus as well. I never saw that. You've never seen Amadeus? Oh, no. God. I'm sorry. What's I'm sorry? Oh, sheesh. Anyway, and then Will Sampson is as Bromden mm-hmm. is quite good. Christopher Lloyd is Tabor. Mm. Scatman Crothers yeah. <laughs> is Turkle. I always forget about him until he shows up. I'm like, oh yeah, Scatman's in this. Then Harding is kind of an, he's one of these characters that, yeah. that you don't really, it's hard to like, but I don't know. I, I get him a little bit, you know, uh, William Redfield. And these are people you wouldn't necessarily know by name, but you know by their face. Face, okay. yeah. I would say especially um, Vincent Chiavelli. Mm-hmm. I, God, he's got, I love his face. Well, he and Michael Berryman have just the most distinctive faces on the yeah, planet. I think so. You know, Chiavelli has passed away, but they're just interesting. They're so articulate and intelligent and mm kind human beings it's so it's so wonderful to hear them when they give interviews and he's awesome i love it's him wonderful wonderful stuff <laughs> anyway my problems with the film feel like they have no. little to do with any of the quality of the no it's nothing to do with the quality of the movie the film. No. there's some great comedy to enjoy one of my favorite shots in the movie is when um the second time they're playing basketball and it's like all the guys playing basketball yeah and um McMurphy has has taught Bromden. <laughs> he's just he's taught he's like taught him, quote unquote. Like he knows what's going right. on. Obviously, he knows as we what's find going out. On, yeah. 
um, he thinks he's taught him how to play basketball. And my favorite, one of my favorite shots is just Bromden strolling across the basketball court while the other guys are running. I don't know. Uh-huh. I think it's hilarious. And, I love well, it. Well, I, I love that sort of change in him, though. Because the yeah. first time he does it, he just walks across. And then later you see him sort of jumping. And then he's and smiling he's, and he's, he's running in, across. Yeah. And exuberant about it all. You know, after the fishing trip, I love that whole thing. He's introducing all of the patients. He calls them doctors. Except yes. for Harding, except for Harding, who he calls, it's who he calls Mister, <laughs> and he, just the look on his face is is priceless. And it's, there are it. lots of there are lots yes. of wonderful details. And that's one thing that you I've mentioned before that you really like about movies. You've heard someone say like that a really good movie is in in the details, in those little yeah. details that you you pick up on. Yeah, it's Coppola. Coppola said, you know, Coppola said that. That's right. Yeah. He said, you know, if you want to make a great movie, add a lot of weird details. Yeah. And he and he used that word weird details. You know, because things that stand out that are just sort of like, that's strange. That Mm -hmm. but it's memorable when you have a little thing like, you know, calling everyone doctor except for Harding. (laughs) The look on his face drops and all that sort of stuff. That last group where this is after the basketball game, he he does this whole thing, you know, where they're in the pool and the orderly tells him it, where he just says, oh, I got 68 days and I'm out yeah. of here. It's like, where do you think you are? You're here until we say you're out of here. You're going to mm-hmm. die in here, essentially, is what he tells McMurphy. Yeah. And McMurphy brings it up in the group. You can keep me here as long as you want. And then, then it's like, well, what about the rest of these guys? They can keep it. It's like, well, they're all voluntary. Yeah, that's another part of mm-hmm. thinking that McMurphy doesn't really under he doesn't understand where he is he doesn't understand these guys issues at all they're all voluntary they chose they to be, to there, be be, there they chose to be there because chose they know that they know they know they need help and they're at not, least there's they're self-aware enough yeah. to know that they have problems and you know is is mcmurphy mentally ill no but no. he does he need help yeah i think he does i mean if he's At the very least, I would say he's probably... For statutory rape, for goodness (laughs) sake. At the very least, you could say maybe he has like an antisocial personality. Yeah. Problems with authority. Mm -hmm. But no, he doesn't really have... He doesn't have the same kind of issues that these guys do. They have very serious things that they need to work out. Again, that cannot be solved by going fishing or playing basketball. Right. Yeah, so we find out that the only other people that have to be there are him, a couple of what she calls the chronics. Chronics. Yeah. In the, then, in the book, yeah, it's that there's chronics and acute. Yeah. Tabor is also committed. And you can see that. The way Christopher yeah. Lloyd plays him, he's probably a violent criminal. Yeah. Or uh, schizophrenic, he, possibly. I don't know. He's very intense. And I think the way Lloyd plays him is about pitch perfect. Yeah. But that's the nature with everyone. But, you know, I can't remember who he says it to, but he says, you're no crazier than the average out- asshole out on the street. That's what Nicholson says to the whole group. Yeah. This whole idea of, like, this self imposed and relating to magnolia because this will come up this whole idea of imprisonment and freedom is it self-imposed is it imposed by someone else what is 
making this happen for you. Because there's this sort of idea, you know, like in Psycho, we're all in our own private traps, you know. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's sort of a theme of both of the movies is the nature of imprisonment, the nature of freedom, what makes a person free and what makes them jailed by themselves or by an institution or by something else. Which I think kind of goes into my other question about the movie about Nurse Ratchet is Nurse Ratchet mm-hmm. really evil? In some way, I think she's a representation of those institutions. Yeah. Like we were talking about. That is a part of keeping these men jailed in a way. Oh, yeah, certainly. Because when you really look at Nurse Ratchet, yes, she's like one of the main villains of the story. She even looks like a villain. Her hair looks like is, devil horns. Devil horns, yeah. Very obvious yeah. <laughs> imagery there. And even her name is reminiscent of, of a ratchet. Yeah. 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 A wretched is what it sounds mm-hmm. like. But in the way Louise Fletcher plays her is very, like you said, calm and cool mm-hmm. for the most part. She doesn't flip out on these guys. She's not like physically doing anything against them, but she does have this power and control over them. My big question is, does she really care about them? Is she really trying to help them? Do we actually see her do anything that is helping these guys and their mental issues? Because a lot of the times you see in the group, she says, you know, the purpose of this group is therapy. When all I'm hearing from her in her therapy sessions is her bringing up these men's issues as a way to emasculate them in a way. Because like I said before, the movie and the book is very misogynistic. All of the, the female characters, the women characters that you either see or are talked about are either bitches or whores. Right. Is basically the way it. The way they see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, have the way Rat- the, or you have Nurse Ratchet and then you have... You have Nurse Ratchet, you the have others. the sex workers that mm-hmm. can what's the other one's name? Crap. <laughs> Maybe it was Rose or something like that. Candy I, and I can't Rose, remember. I think, yeah. But then you also have the ones that are not talked about. You also have Billy's mother and Harding's wife. Right. Those two characters that are never seen, only talked about, are seen as very emasculating females mm-hmm. to, the, to the men. Because Billy's mom, I remember like Googling stuff on One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest and um, some of the questions that would come up is like, well, what are all these men's issue? And it's like, why is Billy in here? Mm-hmm. And someone just put stutter. Like you can't, you're not in a mental institution because you have a stutter. No, no. It's because he not. has a very domineering mother who's obviously like Nurse Ratched has controlled. He's Norman probably... Bates without the corpse. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> basically a domineering mother that he is afraid of that is what nurse ratchet use is against him harding is a little bit difficult because they address it in one scene but i think it's absolutely true i think he has repressed homosexuality Mm -hmm. because when they talk about his wife that's in the first group isn't it yeah i think so yeah in the first group is like we're talking about mr harding's problems with his wife and his problem with his wife is that she would draw stares from men on the street and, and he would get jealous. <laughs> and yeah, he would get and, jealous. And, and But it's the way it's presented. It's as if it's her fault. <laughs> so she's right. the bad person in that situation. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, she had to go out and seek sexual attention from other men, which is, yeah, it's her cheating on him. But then you can also be like, yeah, but I think you're also a closeted gay in this movie. And you're blaming it on your wife. I think, I, yeah, absolutely. I see that. I, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, but you're right. That's clear. I remember a pap- the paper that I wrote on One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest for that class, that college class, was on the portrayal of the women characters in both mm-hmm. of them. So I remember all this. I remember saying all this. I was like, why didn't I not kind of see this before? I thought I, it's not really sure. my favorite thing 
anymore about the movie. And it's like, and yeah, the, the sex workers are treated as like the, for better term, the, the hookers with a heart of gold, you know, cause they're, they're yeah. nice. Yeah. They're nice. They're friends. It's another way that you can see McMurphy as Jesus because he's friends with, with prostitutes. Mm-hmm. No, not calling them prostitutes anymore. But if they're not given anything more to do than cater to the men. Yep. Yep, that's exactly right. You know, even when Candy is taken on the fishing trip, it's really for McMurphy's McMurphy, chance to yeah. get away and get laid, right? Yeah. You know, while the guys are distracted. And so the question, does Ratchet care about the guys? She might have at one point, I think. Yes, I think I so. Think, I think what we have here is a person who has been doing her job for a very long time, seen a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. and just grown numb of it all. Maybe. So maybe she doesn't have the deep levels of feeling and compassion that she might have had when she was younger mm-hmm. or might have even had toward Billy when he was younger. Who knows? I mean, again, that's sort of alluded to, but not really explicitly yeah. made clear. Kind of a point against her is her strict adherence to her rules and regulations that she's established on the ward, especially after Billy is dead. What is the first thing Mm -hmm. she says? The best thing we can do is go back to our schedule. Right. It's always by the book with her. It's always very much, you know, we need routines. We need traditions even. Just as if they're babysitting these guys, maybe. And not actually trying to help them, but just trying to come up with these routines that will just keep them compliant. Everything about those routines from the very beginning, playing the record and medication time over the microphone, Mm -hmm. you come and you stand in your line, you get your little cup of water and your little cup of pills and you take them all and you head back out into the ward and everything that is done, this is when we have group, this is when we eat, this is when you do your work, this is all these things. Everything is to keep these men docile. Yes. And essentially under her control. Not just her control, the entire institution's control. At the same time, getting into a routine like that is also good for some people's mental health. Mm -hmm. That's not always like a negative thing. It's seen as like a very negative thing, like not allowing these men to have any personality. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that is a way that could be helping them in some way that McMurphy doesn't see because he just sees it as them, like I said, not having any personality, not having any freedom to do what they want to do, but having to do what what she says, what the institution says. Right. And honestly, I watched this movie and thinking there are a lot of things that this has in common with like a school situation, a school routine. Uh You know, hey. as, as a teacher, I see, oh, you come in, you're going to sit on your spot on the floor, you're going to sit quietly, you're going to wait for me to be ready. You know, it's just the way we do it. There are routines that you stick to because you know they work. Yeah. And we can get the most out of our time because I only have, you know, 30 minutes with my kids at a time. So as soon as they come in, you know, I give them a squirt of hand sanitizers or walking in the door now. And then they stand on their dot. We start our song so that we can have the most time we possibly can. That's a little bit off the subject, but it's a similar idea. Just these routines that you put in place, they're not necessarily meant to numb anybody. Right. They're just meant to make time effective and teach people how to use their time effectively. I've read 
for this is again, this is a little bit of a tangent here, but you know, like Stephen King's book on writing, he talks about first thing I do in the morning is I do this, and then I then I write until I've written however much that I can do, and I do that every day. That's the That's way his routine, and it works for him. And so the thing is, having routines and being taught how to do routines, I don't think is a bad thing. No. <laughs> This movie sort of bucks against this idea that any structure... But again, you know, this was a book written in the 60s where there was all of this rebellion against structure and institution. But I think there needs to be some acknowledgement that not all institutions and routines and structures are bad. No. There are some that are. You know, there are some that are going to treat people negatively and they're going to do bad things to people. I'm not denying that. But what I am saying is that are we really needing to throw everything out because of how we feel about it in this situation? Yeah. Again, I don't have the answers. And I I feel like I'm just sort of going a little bit. You know, stream of consciousness here. So if I, I say know, anything, I do too. <laughs> so if I'm saying stuff that's completely off the mark, so be it. Help me figure it out. I think that's what we're trying to do here: is trying to <laughs> I'm, figure, I'm trying it, to figure out it out. A little I'm bit, trying to figure you know? it out as we talk because yeah. I don't really know for sure. Like I said, I could go either way. We see the men. No, they don't have the personality, but we do see that their mental health is at least in check before McMurphy gets there. In a way, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. A professional are they getting are they getting better i don't know i don't know but yeah, we, exactly. we also haven't we haven't seen their progress we only yeah. see where they are when this disruption comes into their life we don't see them really getting any better aside from the, the whole thing we just had about the schedules and routine i don't see ratchet doing anything that is really helping them entirely no. she's not helping either no no. But you raise a good question, though. Is McMurphy making any improvement at all either? No. This institution basically does not know what they're doing. I keep calling it institution. I don't mean like mental institution. I mean like health, the healthcare system, basically, that is represented in this movie. There's only one good doctor. Dr. Spivy is the only good one because they have that whole discussion. They have it several times because McMurphy is there to be evaluated about whether or not he needs to to stay there or go back to the prison work farm. Right. They say several times that they don't see any indication of mental illness in him. Right. They say it more than once. They think he's dangerous, which he's not dangerous, I don't think. I think that's after the fishing trip. They're like, uh, is he is he dangerous? They're really asking, is he dangerous to us? Yes, he is dangerous to them and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But Spivy said, it looks like Spivy, but I think they say Spivy in the movie. I think they say Spivy as well, yeah. (laughs) His name looks like Spivy. Um, He says that he wants to send him back to prison, which is exactly what they need to do. He does not need to be there. And Nurse Ratched wants to keep him. And she's doing that for very selfish reasons, I think. I think you're right. That is a huge mistake in this movie. uh (laughs) It is. And that's where we also learn her first name. Mildred. Mildred, <laughs> Mildred Ratched. Ratched. <laughs> I mean, that's quite a name there. Yeah. It's very true. It is selfish. And she she's like, I can get through to him. But I mean, is that really what she even cares about? This I think she mostly so, just wants to. Yeah. She's like, so I just good about don't Louise like this Fletcher guy. in the movie is that she says we could send him you know, back to prison or could send him up to um, a ward. I think it's a ward they're talking about that's for more, like more dangerous criminals. Like we're just going to be putting our problems off on somebody else. But I think we can help him. And she's so convincing in that line to the doctor's. 
It's like, but I don't believe you at all. You want him back so that you can take your control back from him that you've lost in the other men that he's taken from you. She's not the only villain. I think the whole healthcare system and the way that they're handling all of the patients Mm -hmm. in this movie is kind of the main villain. Oh, yeah. I think that's sort of the point that Kesey was trying to make in the novel was that we have a messed up mental health system and the whole thing is rotten to the core and it needs to be done away with, I think is what his whole thesis was. I think so. What does McMurphy say about her? That she ain't honest is what he, right. he says about her. He does call her a bit of a cunt. Which he is, does. <laughs> don't he say does. that. Um, he also says that she likes a rigged game. Yeah, that, that's one of the notes I jotted down. She likes a rigged game, if you know what I mean. I think he's talking about what we were just saying, like what she's representing as the problems in the healthcare system. Um, without getting into everything that goes into like ECT and yeah. shock treatment, public perception of ECT is that it is a very barbaric practice. Right. So we'll just go with that because that's how it's basically portrayed it in is. this movie. And it is a pretty harrowing scene watching McMurphy get ECT. I have come to some my own personal different opinions about some of those things. Right. Part of it, you know, is I read Carrie Fisher's book. Carrie Fisher wrote a book called Shockaholic, which is about her experiences with electroshock therapy. Bad or good? It, good. It was positive yeah. for her. Yeah, someone in my and, family has had it done. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, have you ever seen, if you've ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind, it's not electroshock in that case, it's adrenaline shock. I remember. But again, it's it's depicted as a completely barbaric practice. Yes. Sometimes we go into these things thinking we know everything about them, but we may not. Yeah. And I don't know enough about these things to really have a fully informed opinion. So I'm not going to say That's why I, that's what I'm saying we'll go with the what other. the perception of it is. Yeah. In the, the film, in the film. Is most definitely like this is horrible. And cuz you know like the thing that have, they do to the men mm-hmm, as another to placate way placate them. As yeah. punishment mm-hmm. for one thing. And also, yeah, to placate them and to keep them docile so they can control, baby- them. control them and just babysit them and until mm-hmm. they die. It seems like that's what their goal is for these guys is just to keep them in the ward and keep them under control until they die. It doesn't seem like they have any indication of letting any of these men back into society. That's what it feels like in a way. Right. If they're not going to let McMurphy out, who they said several times has no mental illness. Yeah, I mean, they say that right at the very beginning. Doesn't the doctor even say, I don't, you're not mentally ill. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It says it's right to him, as I recall. And you know what? He's not. No. He's trying to play the system. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't know what that entails when he goes about trying to play the system. He doesn't know what kind of rigged game that he's in. No. There's a lot here and there's a lot to deal with. And you know, I don't know that we could ever mine the depths of all of this. I know. Um, and <laughs> there's another thing. They, they're they not doing anything for Bromden no, in the movie. They're the, ignoring the, 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 pati- the patients that they label as chronics, the ones that they think are lost causes. They don't even try to speak to him. Yeah. And the thing is, Bromden is one of the people she lists as being committed. Yes. I forget why, though. In the movie, they don't say. No. They don't say why Tabor is either. It might have something to do with um, the story that he tells about his father. Right. That's quite possible. It is very ambiguous as to why he's there, which is interesting. 
I like this movie. I swear I do. Don't I? <laughs> I don't know. From what we've been saying, it sounds like, yes, you do. You just have struggles with it. Yes. And that's not a bad thing. I don't think so. There are different sequences, you know, like when Cheswick does this whole thing about, you know, I want my cigarettes. I don't that... want I don't want yours. I don't want his. I want mine. You know. That whole <laughs> performance from him when he's yeah. yelling like, I want something done. That kills me. Rules? Piss on your fucking rules, oh! Miss Ratchet. Sit down, will you, Cheswick? I want you to know something right here and now, Miss Ratchet. I ain't no little kid. You said I ain't no little kid where you're going to have cigarettes kept from me like cookies. And I want something done. Ain't that right? That's right. Now will you sit down? No, I won't. I won't. I want something done. I want something done. I want something done. I want something done. I want something That's probably my favorite part of the mm-hmm. movie. Of course, it leads to the electroshock system. because, Well, part of it, you know, McMurphy attacks the orderlies. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. this whole situation, this whole brawl that goes on with the three of them. Cheswick sort of gets the shock therapy because he just acted out. Yeah, which is not a good reason. It's not a good reason. Whereas McMurphy, he actually assaults someone. It's also he, not a good reason for yeah. shock treatment. No, not, not, not against someone will but i mean he yeah he has something some kind of consequence that should happen probably sure. you know <laughs> whether probably not that at least not in the way it's portrayed in the film well you can also see the the orderlies and the way that they they treat the patients is mm-hmm. also not the best <laughs> it's rough i mean it's like a jail there's that scene with um, the the cigarettes with with Cheswick, yeah. and they're you know the the other patients are you know tossing the cigarette back and forth, and it ends up and in Tabor's pant leg. Tabor's pant leg, yeah. When Tabor finally notices it, he kind of flips out, and he's like trying to like you know kick it off or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they see it as him flipping, flipping out, out. Mm-hmm. and they they basically attack him and carry him away instead of saying, "Hey, hey, what, what's going on? What's wrong?" He could have yeah. just said, "The cigarette was in my pant leg. I was trying yeah. to get it off." But they just immediately go to that. It's hard for me to see them as there to really help these guys. It's just another strike against that. You see that at the ending too, because when they walk in, when Ratchet and the little nurse and the orderly sort of walk into the mess that is mm-hmm. their ward, the orderlies are all kind of looking at each other like. Yeah, we get to kick some. We get to exactly. we get to crack some skulls for this, and they yeah. look like they're positively gleeful about it. Mm-hmm. Actually, I looked at it two ways. My first reaction was, do they hate Ratchet as much as the patients do, and they think this is funny, or are they just looking forward to busting some heads? I think so. I th- and I came to think because when they start going at it, it's like they're enjoying this because yeah. she. She just asked them to uh, to make sure that everybody's accounted for, and and they go through and like like, hey, wake up! Yeah, you don't have to do it like that. It's a lot of ill treatment that you see. It is in that whole scene. They look when Ratchet is sort of looking around. They look like they're on the verge of laughing during that whole part, uh-huh. and they find Turkle, you know, passed out. <laughs> <laughs> Turkle, I love Turkle. <laughs> well, Scatman Crothers is is impossible not not to, to like. like. I know. 
He's just so instantly likable in every situation he's in mm-hmm. in any movie I've ever seen him in. It's like, yeah, you're drawn to him. I mean, yeah, sure. as an actor, I mean, he wasn't a trained actor, clearly, but it didn't matter. It, his persona just works on screen so wonderfully, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I just really like him in this. It's a really small part, but it's quite memorable. He's a bit of a creep. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he is. But kind of every guy in this movie is. (laughs) Okay, so then getting to the end, like we've already talked about, like the whole thing with with Ratchet and Billy. Like I said, huge strike against her character that she would do something like that. And she does it intentionally, I think. She She very much does it intentionally. She's definitely pushing his buttons. So he kills himself and everybody sees McMurphy. A little bit of a redemption for him. He has the chance to escape, but he sees something's going on. He knows something is going on with Billy and he goes, checks it out, finds out what's happened and he attacks Nurse Ratchet and strangle her. And it's a moment where you can you can see her humanity. You see mm-hmm. that's a, another like pretty intense scene. The look on her face. Yeah, she is. gets so red. Well, I mean, it's almost like she said, "Okay, Jack, I trust you." Like actually strangle Squeeze. me. Squeeze. Yeah. Because you can see the, her eyes are like bugging out a little yeah. bit. I mean, it, it really looks real. It's very it does. intense. Very intense. You see her human side in a way in that. Yeah. You see that she's just she's just a person. But then we get to um, his punishment for that. Right. This is, of course, an echo back to an earlier scene where after the electroshock treatment, he comes down and he mm-hmm. pretends that he's been lobotomized, essentially, that he's been yeah. turned into a zombie. And, you know, he just sort of joking jokes about it well this time he actually has been given a lobotomy yes see the scars on his head and partially shaved and some of his hair's grown back but a lot of it is still sort of partially shaved and just that look on his face and everything is just it's gut-wrenching moment whatever i might think about mcmurphy's character that's incredibly tragic yes it is absolutely because you see this life spark that was so strong in this character just gone just this empty shell and that is the biggest strike against nurse ratchet and the whole institution absolutely that is an evil act that is completely evil you know it was done as punishment for what he did to her Mm -hmm. did he really deserve to be lobotomized for that right seriously yeah of course that's incredibly evil yeah. He deserves to be sent back to jail is what he deserves. He deserved to be sent back to jail like a week after he got there. He's a criminal. He's dangerous. He needs to be in prison. He doesn't yes. belong here. Yeah, this is where it, the movie kind of gets me back. That's where I kind of see the whole picture. This is cruel what's happened to him. No matter what's happened in the movie, like, he doesn't deserve this. Nobody deserves this. And it breaks my heart at the end. Of course, the scene with Bromden suffocates him with his pillow because obviously he's essentially already dead. It's a mercy killing, yeah. Then he picks up, he's like, I'm as big as a mountain. I feel as big as a mountain. And he picks up that, I don't know, that water. It's a, hydro, it's a hydrotherapy, hydrotherapy unit thing. Yeah. And carries it. I, I always forget that he actually picks up, he like carries it all the way across the ward before he throws Lifts it, it out the window. his head and throws it out the window. I love that there's no sound in that too when it goes through mm-hmm. the window. It's just the music. Because there's no, there's oh, no yeah. like big loud crashing sound Crash. of it going through the window. I kind of like that. And then he just runs off and, you know, the sound wakes up the patients. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You see Tabor, Christopher Lloyd, just sort of cheering him out the door. You I know. do love that. I love his, yeah. his little cheer. Especially that final shot. He goes, yes. <laughs> He's yes. like, It's like a very yeah. tri- triumphant look on his face. That is a good moment. That's a really good moment. And Bromden just running across the field is how it ends. Into kind of a, what is a sunset, sunrise, sunrise probably. I'll say sunrise. It's a striking ending. You know, there's no ending that's quite like that. It's been sort of parodied and messed with and stuff over the years, but that's what happens to great work of cinema, (laughs) you know, Uh, and memorable moments like that. And our opinions can can change. I still don't really know how I feel about the movie. I think I like the movie, but I have reservations about some parts of it, and I think that's okay, too. I think you can like a movie and not like everything about it, obviously. Oh, I think so, too. Yeah, my feelings, like I said, have changed about the movie over the years. When I first saw it, I was struck by it much more than I have been on subsequent viewings. I think there are other movies that get it better. Yeah, but But maybe do it better since then. But we're probably inspired by this. So the greatness of this influence on other things really can't be denied. And I don't think we are denying that. No. The greatness of the influence of this film or the greatness of the film as it stands. It's just there are things that are worth struggling over with it. Yeah, but it is fascinating. And obviously we had a lot to discuss about it. There's a lot of different ways you could look at the movie and read the movie. And I think that's part of what makes me like it. Because I like movies, obviously, that make me think and that that make me struggle in a way. So I do like it. I don't I think I would probably take it off of a my forever favorites list. I don't know what I would put on there instead, but it is one that I am forever fascinated by, I'll say. There we go. That's a good way to put it. Okay, so moving on now to your pick. Let's talk about Magnolia. So from 1999, Magnolia, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. This is a really special movie to me. 1999 feels like the year that I really started to explore movies on a deeper level. There was this movie theater downtown where I live. Unfortunately, it's a Goodwill now and not that movie theater, but it was a $2 theater. So it would play things towards the end of a theatrical run, but it was cheap, you know, (laughs) two bucks to see a movie. Uh, So I had heard about this film. I didn't know much about it. Probably heard some of the critical reviews, which were quite positive at the time from a lot of people. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to check it out. So I watched it. Didn't really know what I was seeing. Kind of got to the end and went, can movies do that? (laughs) And was so unbelievably moved by it. I went back the next night and saw it again just to make sure that it wasn't like a fluke or something. I don't know. Then, I can't remember if it was the next night or two nights later, I took a friend. And I said, you gotta see this movie. So we went and saw it. And so I saw it three times in less than a week in the theater and was utterly mesmerized by it every single time and sort of cut deep by it. And I didn't really understand why at the time. A lot of it was this whole idea of, can you do that in a movie? Can you have your entire cast in a movie that is not a musical sing a song all at the same time, cutting from one of them to the next? Can you have fucking frogs falling out of the sky? I mean, how is this possible? How does this movie even exist? How is this movie released by a, a major studio, an important studio? This is 
impossible. This movie, by all measures, should not exist because you pitch this to anybody and they're going to say, you are insane. (laughs) When I got the DVD, I would put it on at night, watch it as sort of like a comfort thing as I was falling asleep sometimes even. I would watch it a lot. And then after I got married, I think... I probably watched it with my wife, but I just didn't watch it a lot. And so I hadn't seen this in quite some time before watching it for this, but so much of it was still kind of indelible. I was a little nervous that I was going to have a similar reaction that you had to, uh, apparently at least, to, to Cuckoo's Nest, where it didn't work for me anymore. But it cut me deeper than it ever has. It's a movie that, for me, the older I get, apparently, (laughs) it just has more and more profound effects on me. Just because it's a movie about experiencing life. And I think the more life you've experienced, the more you can appreciate with it. Yeah, sure. There's a big speech in this movie all about regret Mm -hmm. that I had thought was powerful before. But this time, it just about killed me. (laughs) But we'll get to that a little bit later. As I was watching it, I just started texting you. It's like, yeah, I I did too. (laughs) After the wise up scene, which is later, I I texted you and I said, This scene just made me cry more than I've ever cried at a movie ever, especially one I've seen already. Yeah. You know, and was obviously knew that scene was coming. And then I think you, (laughs) we just started texting about it back and forth for because I was watching it too. You were telling me that you were really excited to talk about this movie. <laughs> more than um, I was more excited more th- to talk about Magnolia than I was to talk about Cuckoo's Nest. Because I, I'm pretty sure I saw this. I know I saw this around when it first came out in 99. So I was still pretty young then. And I remember seeing it and maybe like you're saying, like maybe trying to be more like a, a film snob and maybe see more prestige movies that I think I should see and just not fucking getting it at all. Not feeling anything. And I was just like, well, this is just weird or whatever. And I have not watched it since then. The last time oh. I watched it was a week ago. And I was pretty fascinated with it. I watched I watched it once and then I watched it the next night. And then right after I was watched that, like, while I was talking to you, that was the next night that I watched it. And I was just, I just had it playing again and just thinking about it again. Like, as we were talking, I was like, yeah, this is really good. And it's, it didn't hit me. I don't think it didn't hit me as emotionally as mm-hmm. it did for you, but it did make me think about a lot of things. And it made me just, you know, think about life, things that I've, I've learned over the years that is probably the reason why I didn't appreciate it when I first saw it, because I was too young right. and I didn't have the life experience. And what's interesting about this movie is there is like zero plot to this movie. Yeah. Uh, It takes place in one day in the valley and there are all these different characters that sometimes bump into each other, are sort of vaguely connected. Some are very closely connected. They just sort of wander in and out of the movie and it creates a tapestry. feels like instead of a plot, it's just, it's these characters that are just representative of whatever ideas or, or morals or life lessons that he's yeah. he's trying to impart on the viewer. Is and really I what think they, they, they might 
might have been ones that he was struggling with at the time. Yeah, it sounds like it seems like it. It kind of plays like yeah. that. And you hear him. I think I've, I read somewhere that now he thinks that the movie is too long and too self-indulgent, maybe in a way. Mm. But I kind of watch it and I'm like, I don't know. I love every minute of it. Really, there's something. I don't to know look, what I would take out about it. There's something to look into with every character and every scene mm-hmm. and like every interaction they have. Yeah. Well, he's such a different filmmaker now than sure. he was when he made I mean again he film, changes people change yeah for goodness sake I mean the filmmaker that made the Phantom Thread and the filmmaker that made Boogie Nights and Magnolia they're just light years apart from each yeah. other I mean, in all honesty, the filmmaker that made Boogie Nights is light years away from the one that made Magnolia. Yeah. Obviously, there are certain things that <laughs> that are familiar that you see in his style that continues from Boogie Nights. Because Boogie Nights was 97. So, I mean, this is a pretty yes. close... Mm-hmm pretty close to that movie because he's not known now he's sort of like Kubrick there are long periods of time between God he was uh, so young movie though. To movie. Uh. oh my goodness and to think that this movie came out of a man so young yeah is pretty amazing I don't think I was that far off from how old he was when he made it when I saw it it's almost it doesn't feel like it yeah. see I was 21 I don't think so I would have he would have been a I little don't think bit, I would have appreciated me, it yeah. yeah he I think he was like I don't know I don't want to know he was in his 20s though right I think he was in 99 I was 21 so even in my 20s I don't know that I would have related to this movie like I do now and the fact yeah. that he made this movie when he was in his 20s is, is maybe he's just incredible. like an old soul, you know, <laughs> maybe that's it, because it wasn't all that much later that he made There Will Be Blood, which is kind of an old soul kind of movie. Yeah. You know. OK, so how do we talk what, about Magnolia? <laughs> here's what I'm thinking about. OK, so this movie is cut into three large chunks. We have that first act, about 45 minutes, where we just are just blast introduced to all these characters. The second section is the longest. It's about 90 minutes. It takes you into the conflicts, all the intricacies of it all. It's when the game show is on is essentially what it is. And then... And that music plays for so long. Doesn't it? So long. (laughs) It's wild. I love it. (laughs) It's wild. And then the third act is where we have our resolution. Frogs. um, Where we have our all sorts of weird stuff going on in that ending. (laughs) I think the frogs are probably the weirdest thing in this movie. I'm just. They are the weirdest thing. I'm just saying. It's kind of. But I have. I. Well, the thing is, okay. He plants the seeds for it from the very beginning, though. Because. What did I miss? Shall we begin? Okay. okay, let's begin. So, uh, all right. So the pr- it starts with the prologue where we've got these stories of coincidences. Right. And if you look all there, there are eights and twos yes. all over the place. Okay, so. I know. I read about that. I caught okay. this. Okay, so eight two uh, is, is a Exodus, reference. Yeah. Exodus 8-2. Exodus 8-2 Exodus is, this is what the verse says. This is a paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me. I'm going off the top of my head. Because I remember, because I saw... Now, a lot of people didn't notice it the first time they saw it, but I saw it on a big screen the first time, and there are these signs that light up that say Exodus 8-2 on them mm-hmm. all throughout the movie. And so I went home and I looked up that verse, and it's, if you will not let my people go, I will rain frogs down upon your, or plague your nation with frogs. It's from, you know, the whole Moses thing, Moses and the Exodus and all this stuff. Okay. So see the 10 commandments. If you don't know what that's all about (laughs) or the abominable Dr. Fives, either one, they're both fun. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) 
Okay, so he plants the seed in that way, but not everybody knows biblical verses. I know, and I didn't know it off the top of my head when I saw it either. Okay, so this whole idea is strange things happen all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, he's trying to get you ready for this. It's like, and the whole thing, those stories are actually not true. He made them all up. But there are weird ass coincidence stories. But there are weird things that happen. Okay. Well, he he didn't make up with the one with Patton Oswalt and the tree and the scuba diver Mm -hmm. and the forest fire. That's an urban legend that's been going on forever and it's bullshit. (laughs) But it's fascinating. And what he's trying to do is set up. All right. These are stories that people get. They they've heard stories like this. Weird things happen. Sometimes they're unexplainable and you just got to go with it. Just go with me is what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I really think that's what he's trying to do with that opening little prologue. And then Amy Mann's w- cover of one starts and Amy Mann is important because she's everything to this movie. Okay. Amy Mann is the reason this movie exists. The very first line that Paul Thomas Anderson wrote down for Magnolia was the one that's in our intro says, now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing each other again? Okay. He changed it slightly, but that's the line in the song. Okay. And you hear the song Wise Up. Different elements of that song, Wise Up, are seeds. They're kernels of what grew into these different characters. So all of these characters, and the song One is important because One is the loneliest number, right? I love that song, yeah. Yeah, and it's a beautiful cover as he extends it. He extends the hell out of it. It's like 10 minutes long you know when they're just showing these introductions of all these characters but that's another thing that this movie is so much about is every single soul in this movie is unbearably everybody is lonely yeah yeah in whatever way and so you have you see all these that was my notes i was right about that yeah this makes me feel makes me feel smart when i get a movie like magnolia (laughs) sometimes i'm like i don't see this at all but Oh, you totally get it. So this, that, <laughs> I think that, I do. during that, it's just quick intros of all the characters. You see Frank on the TV. You see, I'm Jimmy Gator. You see, uh, you know, they come in, They you see Claudia, you see uh, with the guy and all these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, I I just wrote down Claudia's name and wrote a little face with sad face with a tear on it because her story she is so looks sad like she, to me and also she looks like she's on the verge of tears the entire movie every time she's on the screen she does not smile the whole until movie the end. until I know. <laughs> the last shot yeah okay there are tvs Perfect. everywhere in this movie tvs everywhere yeah. absolutely inundated with tvs and then that whole song ends with John C. Riley as Jim, the cop, narrating his own life. And I love that. He has this inner mo- and he's just sitting there. And it's like, you know, sometimes on this job, you do things. That, you know, and it's like. And but it, it, yeah, it's played as if he's talking to somebody. He's talking he's to his not, partner, he's, he's but he's in the car himself. by himself. Yeah. When <laughs> is the loneliest number that you Let me tell you something. This is not an easy job. I get a call on the radio, dispatch, it's bad news, and it stinks. But this is my job, and I love it, because I want to do well. In this life and in this world, I want to do well, and I want to help people. And I might get 20 bad calls a day. One time I can help someone, I make a save, I correct a wrong or right a situation, 
then I'm a happy cop. And we move through this life, we should try and do good. Do good. And if we can do that, not hurt anyone else, well, then... We've all said John C. Riley is our fa- our favorite. Uh, yes, in this movie, he absolutely is. God, just as an actor, I fucking love him so much. He kills me every time he's on the screen because he's so he's so sad in this movie and heartbreaking. He's also yeah. incredibly charming, and I just want to like go up and give him a big hug. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and right off the bat, John C. Riley's character was the one that I got the most because when I saw this mm-hmm. at twenty one, I was. I was pretty because he's he's a devoted Christian in this movie, and I I latched onto that right away because at twenty one that was very much me, but also wanting to be a nice guy and yeah. and dedicated and devoted and kind, you know that's what I was shooting for, and I still do. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, that's basically what I got from him too. That's because that's what I'm I'm trying to do now, like just wanting to be a good person and a good friend to other people. Yeah, and feeling like him and feeling like I, I'm failing in a lot of ways and not connecting with in a lot of ways. And yeah, he's the yeah. one I, I related to the most. Yeah, and you know he even ends this whole monologue says do good and not hurt anyone else. Yes. Then and it's just like <laughs> dot 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 dot. In fact, there are three chords from the end of the song that close that almost like it's an ellipses. Oh, nice. Which just dawned on me just now. Anyway. <laughs> and then you have he goes out on the call, he finds the body and all this stuff. We're introduced to uh, Julianne Moore as Linda. Uh, we learn about the whole liquid morphine situation, and that's important later. And then we meet Earl and Phil. Yay. Earl Partridge, uh, played by Jason Robards. Uh, is God. dying of cancer. This is his best performance he ever gave, in my opinion. Yeah, I think he is brilliant in this movie. He's so weak, and he, he's some of a lot of what he says doesn't make any sense. And I totally believed him as dying of cancer. And yeah. every and, and the thing is, he had actually just when he made this movie, actually recovered from a bout of cancer oh, wow. that would take his life not that long after making this. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, Uh, as Phil. And this is something I learned, and I don't know if this is true or not. Apparently, Philip Seymour Hoffman said that Magnolia was not just his favorite movie that he was in, but his favorite movie. I love that. Yeah. And and I don't know if if that's true or not, but that is profound i i get it too he, he and robards have some of the best stuff <laughs> some of my favorite stuff some oh, of the God. stuff that moves me so much he's amazing always obviously yeah. super miss him big loss philip seymour hoffman in this movie is is so understated i mean he's mm-hmm. not he's not lester bangs like he no. would be a year later he's not like he was in boogie nights you know, just two years before this, he's so different. Uh, he's very understated. He's just, he's or a even nurse. Twister, which is what I always knew. Yeah, him from. there you go. That's a good one. <laughs> I, always, I always knew him from Twister. Oh, Twister's a blast. Time. I know. Uh, anyway, but I'd love that, you know, just that detached Earl, you know, you know, fine Lily, and, you know, this this detached stream of consciousness. Oh, this is so boring. I, I, this says you cocksucker. You know, all these things that he does just out of the blue is 
Okay, this is where it gets personal. My grandmother died of cancer, of leukemia. And so seeing some of, I mean, my, my grandmother didn't fall into that exactly, but my uncle, my uncle who'd passed away a couple years ago, I actually saw him the day he died. Oh, yeah. And um, it was, and I had, wasn't even thinking about this while watching the movie, but um, he did go into that. My, my mom was trying to get him to sign his name. And he, he, my mom, who's, she was just saying, okay, you need to sign this. Do you remember your name? Oh, and he was like, he was like you know, I'm not going to say his name, but um, just the way that came out of him, you, it was, this is so real. Yeah. And it, it's, um, whew, sorry. No. Uh, that got to me more than I than I thought it would. Anyway, so it seems to me that if Anderson didn't experience someone he knew die of cancer right before making this movie, I don't know what's going on with the world. Because it's so accurate and it's depicted in such an honest and raw way mm-hmm. that there's just nothing else like it. I mean, one of the things that's also just this weird detail, this whole idea of this, he has, he's holding this cigarette in his hand, but there's nothing there. Yeah, you know, it's like here. That's here, like my that's the, like my favorite shot is when he yeah Philip Seymour Take takes it out of his hand and there's nothing and there. there's nothing but there. His yeah, like I said, their their relationship is it's pretty incredible. This movie, the way they have that like nurse patient banter. Yeah, but also like the the genuine care that uh, what's his name Phil Phil and so Phil just Phil is Seymour the Huffman. that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's easy to remember. <laughs> He, the part was written for him. Oh, wow. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, so there are definitely those kinds of things that occur. Like uh, Luis Guzman is plays the role of Louis Luis. Guzman, <laughs> you know, so he's playing himself uh, yeah. in theory. You know, he obviously he's a version of himself. That is a, such an intense scene. I That just that mm-hmm. makes me think of like, I've yeah, I've lost all of my grandparents to okay. cancer or some kind of illness. And like the thing that absolutely broke my heart the most is that my grandpa on my my dad's side died around the same time that my oldest nephew was born. Yeah. So his first great grandchild. And I just remember us going to see him in the hospital at, with the respirator on his face or whatever or like he he was dying but he was holding you know this little baby like the next oh. generation it was just it was such a beautiful moment to me i'll always remember that yeah that stuff is intense no kidding no kidding and the that hurts it, it's <laughs> so it's so real it's yeah. so real then it just takes a completely total shift by introducing Frank T.J. Mackey, uh, played by <laughs> Tom, Tom Cruise, um, okay. with probably the most famous line in the movie that I will not repeat here. Um, but <laughs> I'll you say know, it. he's respect the cock and tame the cunt. <laughs> Fuck you, T.J. Mackey. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, we're supposed to think that. I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're supposed to like Tom Cruise at the beginning of this movie. No. I just want to cut his fucking hair, you asshole. Like, <laughs> look like a complete douchebag. He and you he, are and a douchebag. This is the note I wrote about Frank. I put, Frank is Travis Bickle without the 44 man. <laughs> because he... I, I know he's, he's not, worse than he's, Travis. He's not an incel, but he comes artist. across like one. He's just like, you know, that whole line, the, the women are... It's like they're in a union line that we talked about with Taxi Driver came to mind while he was spewing some of this vile 
crap that he spews out. Maybe, maybe he's not an incel, but the guys that attend his seminars probably are. Definitely are. Absolutely are. <laughs> yeah, and that is the difference. Well, and also Frank T.J. Mackey is also rich and attractive. Sure. And he, most of these guys are not, you know, and he's so... He's giving them the worst advice. Uh, it's that awful. Fir- that first slide... That is that you see on the screen. They don't address it at all. I but I saw it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't it's, remember what, what it is. It was out of fake you like you're nice how, and to, how to turn that friend in quotes into your sperm receptacle. That's the one. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, oh, okay, yes. I'm really, really supposed to hate this guy, but I, I can't stand it. <laughs> well, one of the things about him is he's so funny. In a, yeah. in a horrible way, the way yeah. he's delivering this. I mean, he's delivering it like, you know, a Tony Robbins seminar. Yes. You know, and that's part of the joke, I think. You know, he's... That's totally the joke. I know, the, I get that it's a joke, and I get that you're supposed to hate him, but it's like, it's so awkward. Well, <laughs> the, thing is, the thing is, I think Anderson's doing something smart here, though, too. Because, yeah, he's, he's a prick. He's a fucking asshole, as his own father says yeah. later. Because you know, he's referring to, you're a fucking asshole. He's a fucking asshole. And he is. He totally is. But we also, we can't completely hate him, because otherwise the end of the movie doesn't work. Right. I think that it's just hard now. Yeah. Maybe now in this time period, knowing. Oh, it makes it harder. Yeah. That there are guys like that and that they have mm-hmm. done really really horrible things yes that have those thoughts it, it is a yeah. joke i think in this movie but it's like eh, it's also true now <laughs> very true well i think it was true then too though um, i don't think you heard as much about it I don't. you didn't hear it. about it as much there was no yeah. me too movement there was no uh any of that sort of thing happening so it it does play it different but again like i said at least at the beginning of this movie you're not supposed to like frank mackey mm-hmm and I think Guinevere, the interviewer, is one of the best characters in this movie. <laughs> She's awesome. <laughs> She's awesome. When we she get to the so, interview. She is playing we, with him. Oh, God, yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, the interview is in the second act. But yeah, that okay. that is just, I love it. Then um, Melora Walters as Claudia is, <laughs> oh, God. Um, so she's had some sort of one night stand. Her father, Jimmy Gator, played by Philip Baker Hall, shows up to tell her that he's dying and he has cancer he has cancer in his bones and he has maybe a month to live and she's just like get out of here get the fuck out that's her only thing that she can say to him is i don't want to see you get out of here now pretend you don't know the ending right okay <laughs> at this point it's like oh my gosh what did he do he's trying to make this connection apparently he wants to fix whatever happened between them, but she will not have it <laughs> at all. Yeah, you see that she has some sort of problem with him that either he doesn't see or that he does not acknowledge. Jimmy is one of those characters that it's part of what makes this movie more complex than meets the eye in some ways. Kind as like far Cuckoo's as, Nest, right? Yeah. yeah. You have like and, conflicting and, thoughts on it. Yeah. And the thing is, okay, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Then you have <laughs> William H. Macy as Donnie Smith. This last viewing, I found him so funny this mm-hmm. time oh, around. He's funnier funny. yeah. than yeah. I, he is funnier than I have ever thought he was. With I love this those red glasses. <laughs> the red glasses and he's going to get braces. He was a former quiz kid. Isn't he? Isn't he credited as Quiz Kid Donnie Smith? Quiz Kid like, Donnie like Smith. Like that's his whole name. That's his full name. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, Quiz Kid. Because so he he competed on this this show 
uh, when he was a, a child. Now he's all grown up. He's they have this whole thing where he's he wants to get braces, and he we don't know why yet, but his teeth are straight. I mean, he has no <laughs> yeah. need for it. And, and his boss says it because his boss is going to fire him because he ran into a 7-Eleven and he was late and all these things in the morning. It's, it's, sometimes it's just watch the movie, for goodness sake. Yeah. Yeah, um, as I can't go into every detail of this movie as much as I wish I could. I love this whole exchange. It's like, didn't you get struck by lightning that time in Tahoe? <laughs> it's like, I don't think braces are a good idea. <laughs> And it's, you know, and that's another thing about this movie. All these, everyone in this movie is a supporting player, but technically, I guess, the tertiary character, like what would normally in a movie be at the third level characters, are like Alfred Molina. I know. (laughs) You know, it's it's insane. They're always so memorable. And Ricky Jay. You know, it's so great. Is that his second, the guy who's in the office with him? No, Ricky Jay is, plays Jimmy Gator's sort of assistant on the on the game show. I'm not remembering. You that. would recognize him in a second if you saw him. I can't, I probably can't think of him right now for yeah. some reason. Yeah, <laughs> okay. you, you would definitely recognize him if, if you saw him. And then we have this whole thing, you know, with the prophet, the kid who comes in, because they found the body in... The closet, the whole exchange with Marcy is funny and <laughs> it's hilarious. But he's really restrained. I think he's not trying to be belligerent. You know, he's really trying to calm the situation as much as he can. Jim is, I think, though it's a difficult situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clearly, the kid comes up and says, "Hey, I'm a I'm a rapper and all these things," and and he's thinks he's sort of a funny little cute kid. He tries to be nice, but he's just unable to listen. Yeah. One of the things that with Jim, and this was totally me, was someone would start cursing or something like that, and I couldn't hear what they were saying, which is ridiculous. I know, <laughs> but but you must this hate was, me. No, not at all. I mean, this is this was a long time ago, okay. And so, in fact, when I saw Jim, I was like, oh gosh, do I really do that? You know, because there's more than one occasion where he's like, oh, hold it up, hold up. Oh yeah. Do you know? Cut out, cut out the cursing. Cut, cut out the out language. The language. And, yeah. and the kid lays the whole thing out. He's like, I told you who did it. And you weren't listening. He's like, okay, whatever that meant. Yeah. You know, he just sort of blows him off. And that's Jim's flaw. He yeah. can't get past some of these things. And we know that. So when he encounters Claudia, having that early changes. sequence, yeah. he does. And Claudia is the perfect person for him yes. to encounter. And then we have our new quiz kid, Stanley, who's the sweetest kid. Yeah. My heart breaks for that kid every time I yeah, watch this so movie. so much. Oh, God. His, I mean, his dad is sort of a stage dad who's only concerned about uh, them breaking this record on this show, yeah. What Do Kids Know? Which we get the impression was, well, we know, actually. They don't, we don't get the impression. They say it. This is the show that Donnie Smith was on as a kid. Yes. Yeah. So Jimmy Gator was the host way back then, and he still is now. Um, so that's just giving that sense of, of expansion of time. And that's the end of Act One. We're just in, introduced to all these characters like bam, 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 and the situation's set up. Act Two, it starts raining, yes. which is an important thing to know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then this is a brilliant shot because it starts with. I mean, they talk about the the Goodfellas shot, you know, going down to the Copa, 
or you know even in boogie nights you know those long steady cam shots that they do where they're just sort of following a character all around and everywhere in this you know you're following a character then you're running into and meeting another character you're going down different hallways and you're going this way and that way everywhere the choreography to get this thing yeah. to work must have been astonishing yeah i mean filmmaking prowess and this is his third movie hate him in hey, awe. how talented he is. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> absolutely in awe. And this is that whole thing, you know, where you have Stanley's dad, hey, love you. And it's like, then he goes, all right, shut up, everybody. Let's win some money. You know, it's... Yeah. <laughs> you're just like, <laughs> I tell you what, Stanley is one of those characters that just makes me so sad. <laughs> then Melinda Dillon, again, another smaller part as Jimmy's wife, is so good. Yeah. She sort of has these tears as she sends him off to work that day and stuff after hearing this diagnosis of his cancer earlier. She confuses me. She's the devoted wife. So when she comes along at the end, what happens at the end is I think that's really powerful because of this scene. Yeah. It makes that that much more powerful. Yeah. Feels like it was already on her mind. So it's, it's interesting when I went back and watched it. That's a good point. It was like, she's so, yeah, she's, she's very much the devoted wife, but then in you watching her in that scene, as we're talking about, um, she's already thought about it. You know what I mean? She has. And, you know, and during this sequence, okay. So instead of jumping around, maybe we should just sort of stick with the quiz situation here. Okay. So they're doing the game show, right? Okay. Yeah. Jimmy has been, is, (laughs) all he's doing is drinking to get ready for the show. You are introduced to the kids. There are three kids versus three adults. (laughs) That other kid. (laughs) The other, the boy. Yeah, the boy. I don't know his name. I don't remember He kills me. (laughs) He's so funny. And then the girl's like. He is so funny. The girl is funny too. And none of them know, they don't know anything. Stanley answers every single question. Everything. That's the whole situation. The other boy is just kind of like, you can get like endorsements and shit. Like, come on. Yeah. Oh, also to the the little assistant that's working. Um, he says like, eat me, Cynthia, or something. Or bite me, Cynthia. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that's like one of my favorite lines. <laughs> the character interactions feel so lived in. Yeah. You know, uh, because you have these, well, some of it is carryover from Boogie Nights because a lot of these actors worked with each other on Boogie Nights. And yeah. so now there, sure. there's some of that happening. And I don't know if there's a big rehearsal process that goes into it or if it's just sort of shoot it on the moment. But they, whatever they are, they feel really authentic. It's really natural, yeah. The way they interact with each other feels like they've been around forever mm-hmm. with each other. And those are the kind of interactions you have with this longtime assistant, various assistants that Jimmy knows, presumably for a very long time, maybe even since the beginning of the show, which we know has gone on for a very long time. In the course of the game show, you have the whole situation where Jimmy is having his issues. Mm-hmm. Stanley is there. He has to go to the bathroom. As he starts out, he he's doing really good. He's doing astounding. You know that boy. That moment you mentioned this. That moment where he sings the he sings from part Carmen. Of Carmen, oh, isn't that beautiful? He sings it in <laughs> French, and he just has the most pure, pure beautiful, sweet, innocent voice. voice. Uh. Yes, Stanley. Well, that was in French, and that was from the opera Carmen, and that goes. L'amour est un vaisseau rebelle que nous ne pouvons pas privoiser. 
Absolutely gorgeous. And it's it's something. I get chills during that part. Because yeah. the way the camera moves in on him, too, is just like... Yeah, and especially seeing the interactions we've seen him already have with his father before. That's a big theme, obviously, I think we're going to talk about that comes up in the movie. It is not dangerous to confuse children with, children angels. with angels. And I confuse Stanley with an angel. And I think that's the point. I think Stanley mm-hmm. is supposed to be... An angel. Yes. Of sorts, at least. And he's kind of lets people step on him up to this point and push him around. The the other kids, Jimmy, his dad, for sure. Yes. He just sure. wants to please everybody. And the sort of the kid wrangler for the show he says, I have to go to the bathroom. So, like, no, you can't go to the bathroom right now. That's the dumbest thing. <laughs> I know. Let the kid go to the bathroom. They're, liter- they're literally on a break when he asks to go to the bathroom. And she's like, no, you can't go now. You have to wait for a break. It's like. It is a break. I know. You're I on know. a break that... right now. And what game show is filmed live anyway? They're always pre-recorded. This is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but that is, I mean, it obviously adds to. It adds Stanley's to the tension situ- of the movie situation, for sure. But yeah. It's, yeah. It's adults controlling children and controlling their lives and not giving them their own kind of agency, which is so sad watching the effect that that has on Stanley. Uh, So I'm sticking on this stage for now just because you have Jimmy going through his issues. That whole thing where he starts giving away the answers to the question. Yeah. And we're going to play a little Chopin. Oh, wait, I just gave away the answer. I'm sort of giving away the answer here. And and that's kind of because we don't know what's, at least the first time, what (laughs) the situation is. I really feel for him there. Because here's a guy who he knows he can just breeze through this. And here he is having pretty much an emotional breakdown. Because he knows he's probably never going to talk to his daughter again. He knows he's going to die. And here he is wasting his day on a silly TV show. Well, he's also supposed to be, I think, celebrating. Didn't they say before? It's like his. Oh, that's it's like a right. huge. It's like a yes. huge milestone for him on the show. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's his however many hours of broadcasting, yeah. and it's like yeah. one thousand hours of broadcasting or something like that. It was just like this huge number. Anyway, during all this, you know, Stanley pees his pants. <laughs> And he pulls his shirt down and he accidentally buzzes in. Buzzes in, yeah. Oh, God. And that part is Stanley the man. And he's just like, I don't know the answer, Jimmy. I don't know the answer. You know, that part. There's so much of that going on. And Okay, so Stanley's monologue, because there's the bonus round. The kids are way behind. They're losing. And he says, okay, who of the adults are going to come up and play this closing part of the game or whatever? And so Mim, I think, goes up. And Mm -hmm. then Stanley... Get your butt over here. I don't even need to ask, you know, because obviously he's going to be the one. And he gives this whole monologue. About not being a doll. Doll. This isn't cute. I'm not a doll. I'm not, I'm exactly. not your plaything. And it's like, I know when I have to go to the bathroom. Something as simple as that. And it's seeing it's, children it, as, as people, too, as yeah. their own people, like he says, and not just something to play with, not just your muddy machine either. Like he's talking, I think he's talking to his dad. In a way there, too, so... That's sort of where the game show ends up. Jimmy, at one point, passes out. All that stuff that's going on. You know, again, it's hard to talk about this movie with any empathy for Jimmy. Yeah. (laughs) Knowing the truth, or what seems to be the truth, and probably is the truth. I think it is. I think it is, too. Absolutely. We're obviously being really vague about it, but if you... (laughs) (laughs) 
So we're getting you ready for the spoiler alert that if you haven't seen this movie, you should watch this movie. Okay, so maybe um, the the next thing is Phil trying to track down Frank. <laughs> this is my favorite scene. My Good favorite God, scene I love this, don't is you? Is him calling the grocery store and asking yes! for Playboy and Penthouse and Hustler. <laughs> like, well, the thing, thing is, he's just casually, he's casually uh, peanut flipping butter. through the channels and he's watch, and yeah. he lands on a porn station and he just kind of watches it and he has this look on his face and like he's into watching. That's where watching. he gets the idea. Yeah, and, and, and then he's like, okay, I'm going to get some... Uh, some bread, some coffee, some cigarettes. And then he just, do you have Playboy magazine? Yes. Do you have Penthouse? Yeah. Do you the have Hustler? One, the last one's my favorite. is like, you have that? You have, you have that? Yes. like, yes. So it's like, cute. And this is, do you still want the uh, the bread, milk, and cigarettes? He goes, what? yeah. What? And he's like, and there's, there's like, what are you talking about? Of course I do. <laughs> you know, I love, and, and then he goes, okay. Because <laughs> you know, uh, he, he does not understand why she thinks that's weird. I like the joke from the person, though, on the other line. It's like, uh, so you're really just calling because you wanted the magazines. That's why they asked if you still wanted the peanut butter. It's like, <laughs> can, uh, I, like I don't know. I love that. Okay, but do you think it's because he saw the thing on the the TV? Or I kind of read it as he saw that as a way that, that he could find Frank. Oh, yeah, that's totally why it is. Okay, because uh, I thought you were seeing it a different way. I was like, I thought that's no, 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 why. No, 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 no. He was, he was he, you know, but, but the way they play it out makes it look like he's being kind of a perv, you know, and he's yeah. going to have... Um, you know, while Earl's asleep or whatever, he's gonna, gonna you know, have a little fun on his own. But you know, <laughs> yeah. that's that ends up, of course, not being what it is at all. And so he gets on the phone, and my gosh, that whole sequence is like <laughs> that's my favorite. Where where he he's he's being held on the phone. It's like a, he calls customer service of Frank's Frank's whatever company. The, yeah, whatever that yeah. line is to order one eight hundred tame her. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, but this is the part in the movie where you help me. <laughs> I love that. That whole thing. It gets slightly meta. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Where it says, where it's like, you know, I think they put those scenes in movies because they really <laughs> happen. And again, that's another this is planning the part of where that I really need seed. you to listen to me. I really need your help. This is the part where you're going to help me, right? I love that. Yeah, I do like that. Again, you know, we're planting that seed of, okay, this sounds like a stretch, mm-hmm. but these things happen. You know what I mean? Sure. So it's sure. it's just it's okay. just you're stretch we're stretching you a little bit further. It's like these these things happen. These things happen. <laughs> Get ready. You know a little bit. You know what I mean? Brian has eleven pages of notes for this movie, by the way. Yes, I do. So I think of this movie of the character <laughs> situations as kind of being in two halves, connected by a little like a flower, like two sides of a flower with a little something in the middle that connects both sides. Uh-huh. So um, I oh, probably. Instead of going to Earl and Phil, I probably should have gone to Quiz Kid Donnie Smith after the okay. quiz show. Right. Because I think they're one half of the flower. And then Earl and Frank and Linda are kind of the other half of the flower. But they are connected by something that's a subtle thing. But they're connected. Donnie Smith is connected to Earl. No, no Earl Earl is the pro- was well, the yeah. producer. He was the producer yeah. of What Do Kids Know? I know that. Okay. okay. Was yeah, okay. I mean, it, but it, but it's only shown once in the movie. Yeah, you see it. It's only, only it's a very momentary thing. 
I don't know if I should go to Donnie or should we go to Frank? I love Donnie. Can we talk about Donnie? <laughs> Let's talk about Donnie. One of the things I think is funny stuff, every time he gets in a car, he's listening to the same song, like on full blast. He is? He's listening to this song called Dreams Don't Come True. And it's that, yeah, it's this really corny song. <laughs> <laughs> but he, when he gets to the, he goes to the bar. My favorite thing that they do in just movies in general is just mm-hmm. those visual cues to where you completely get his character. And when you see that the bartender has, has braces, braces and he's a hot guy mm-hmm. with braces, you know exactly why Donnie wanted to get braces. And I was like, yeah. I I wanted to die because I was like, that's a little little out there, but it's also so freaking cute. <laughs> it is. And the thing is, William H. Macy just sort of puts his hand to his yeah. teeth. <laughs> He's such a wonderfully physical actor in this. Yeah. <laughs> just subtle things he does. One of the things I really notice about William H. Macy is just the way he speaks. He's so precise in how he speaks and how he delivers mm-hmm. lines. And he's like that in pretty much everything. And just the way he plays Donnie in this, and as he gets drunker and drunker <laughs> as the night goes on, is just so great. And he has sort of a rival uh, played by Henry Gibson. Oh, my God. And he's awesome do you know too. what? I looked at his in the credits. He's Thurston Howell. Is he really? <laughs> and I had never noticed that before. He... Thurston Howell, for those of you not in the know. That's amazing. Yeah, is the millionaire on Gilligan's Island. Island. (laughs) So it's just this funny thing. Like the TV connection. Yeah, that's interesting. Another TV connection, exactly. Is the bartender really even gay, though? We have no idea. I have no idea. Henry Gibson is obviously gay as well. Yeah. You know, he's trying to get Brad's attention as well, though he tends to flash around the the cash that Money, he has. Yeah. Donnie ends up sort of sitting at the bar with him and sort of sparring with him Yeah, as he's getting drunker and drunker. And he says, Donnie's description of love, it's like acid in your stomach and nerves and joy. And my name is Donnie Smith and I have lots of love to give. Yeah, that line. It's just such a sweet moment. That line, dude. So nice, and so much that goes on in here is so. I I probably. I'm just waiting. I don't know if there's some things that I should say yet. (laughs) No, go for it. This is like about Donnie. About Donnie and Stanley, and a big thing I think for a lot of the characters. The big theme for a lot of the characters is. Uh, bad fathers yes obviously that comes up a lot yeah so donnie um we learn his parents stole all his money all of his winnings from the show they were basically stanley's father (laughs) they were exactly and he says all these things you know i confuse melancholy with depression sometimes Mm -hmm. and then he says i'm sick and in love and i confuse the two and then thurston howl I can't I believe that's his name. I love that. He, he, he's not, and the thing is, he's not named in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's only in the credits. <laughs> that's so it's, it's dangerous to confuse children with angels, and that is such an important thing. I didn't really think it is. And he says, no, no, it is not dangerous to confuse children with angels. And he says it because <laughs> he's drunk. He says it's so drunk, but he's so right. 
I think. Because this is one of the things I texted to you because I read that line as seeing children as angels and seeing them as the innocence that they are. Yes. And confusing children with angels and seeing them as they're innocent and wanting to protect them from having a life like Donnie has. Yeah. Bad fathers in this movie cause so much damage to the children. Oh, God. Uh-huh. You see it. You see it in Donnie, Stanley, Claudia. Frank. Um, Frank. Earl. And confusing children with angels is it's a good thing. It's it's protecting them from having that kind of... What did I say in my text? <laughs> That's what I wanted to say. I, I can't remember word for word. I'm sorry, but you, you it's. I think you're saying it very well. Because <laughs> there was another, I think, mm-hmm. point that it connected to. Okay. Well, <laughs> what I do have is that relates to this, though, is Donnie goes into the bathroom to throw up, and he's quoting scripture again. Mm-hmm. He says, the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children. Yeah. Which is also from Exodus. Another thing that is said a lot in the movie about um, the past not being yes. done with you. Yeah. You may be done with the past, but the past is not done with you. Yeah. I think those those two ideas connect in the wig because um, all of the adult characters, that's what they're all dealing with. They're dealing with the bad fathers. They're dealing with a mm-hmm. past that's not done with them yet, even though they think they are done with it. That's right. And that's very much true of Jimmy, uh, that mm-hmm. he's probably the one who faces it the most uh, head on, I guess, in a way. The past is not through with you yes. and you cannot escape it, nor will we allow you to. Yeah. But Frank as well. I mean, Frank has to deal with things that he hasn't dealt with. Yeah. And I think... So is Claudia. Yeah. and It's the same... Everybody. Even Jim everybody. does, but it's only yeah. it's only momentarily mentioned. But he really does have something as well. But, um, okay, okay, so we got Donnie, and that's sort of where that all comes together. He decides he's going to he's going to steal from his boss. Right. You know, so that's sort of where it ends for that. This act ends for him because he got fired, but he still wants to go get uh, his braces. So, yeah, yeah, he's going to go steal from the boss so that he can get his braces. And then um, be with Brad with Brad. Yeah, the perfect like (laughs) hot guy name to Brad. Brad. (laughs) Yeah. Well, then Frank is taken into an interview with a woman named Guinevere. Frank is just so much trying to be this character that mm-hmm. he's created during this whole time. And she's like, all right, calm down. She she <laughs> plays along with him just enough. Yeah. She's like, all right, calm down. Have a seat. She even, like, smiles at him during the interview of mm-hmm. one thing she says, as like, kind of playing as if his tactics are working on her, when they're obviously not. Yeah. But yeah, she she's totally is playing one hundred percent in control of that interview. Yes, Frank thinks he is, but he is not. Nope. And I love that about mm-hmm. that whole sequence because at first it's sort of the regular interview bullshit, but then she starts digging into things. Another thing about Frank, it's a, he says a really interesting line when he first greets her. He says, it's not very safe for you in here. In some level, he knows that what he's doing is not a good thing. That it's wrong, that it's disrespectful. And at the same time, he's couching it in such a way that's like, what I'm doing works, man. It's, it's sort of this interesting yeah. sort of double meaning in a weird way, to me at least. I wondered if it was like, you're not safe in here from all these 
fucking incels that came to my seminar. <laughs> well, that's what I think he means too. But also it's like they're going to come and they're going to try out all yeah. this shit that I've been spouting. Gross. There are women who want to destroy me. No, I find yeah. that hard to believe. Hard to believe. Oh, that's so great. She's just so good <laughs> in this. But when she starts getting into his past, the looks on Cruz's face, the mask falls just ever so slightly. And it's it's filmed mm-hmm. in really tight close-up. So you can just see every little twitch in his face. And he's not moving. He's completely still. It will not move. When he started out the interview doing a fucking backflip. He's kinetic. He's all over the place. Yeah. And she asks, so where'd you get your name? Frank Mackey is not your real name. And he turns on the Frank Mackey and tries to throw her off again by Mm -hmm. just some of the stuff he says to her. He starts using the language that he uses in his seminars with the guys to try and piss her off. He's trying to change the subject. He's trying to get her on the attack just like most people would take the bait, but Guinevere does I totally not would, take though. the bait. Yeah, I would be. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. There are so many things I wanted to just like get at him for. Because I can't remember. I didn't write down exactly what he says, but it's something that he says that's incredible. In the interview insulting. or in? Yeah. During the interview, when she does the whole thing where he uh, takes the name, where she starts yeah, digging into I his can't remember either. and talking about his father and all this stuff. The most useless thing in the world is that which is behind me. <laughs> Chapter three. Mm-hmm. It says, I was told that your mother died, Frank. Then she says, why would you lie? And that is just, that breaks him. He has this whole thing. Oh, my mother's very much alive. My father's dead. Yeah. And in fact, it's the other way around. And he just closes down for the rest of the interview. And then they have that whole thing where it's, just, it's like, Frank, so that's what you're going to do. It's like, what are you doing, Frank? I'm quietly judging you. I I have struggles with elements of Tom Cruise, I'll admit. But this performance is absolutely masterful. And I think because of some of the, and, you know, no offense to anyone, but I think some of the Scientology stuff informs this performance a little bit. And I think that Paul Thomas Anderson knows it. This is the guy that a few years later made The Master. It, It definitely feels like it. But, you know, I'm not disparaging Tom Cruise. I think this performance is Mm -hmm. remarkable. And the fact that he got this out of him. There's another thing towards the end of this. He, like, almost attacks her after the end of the interview. And she pushes him. Guinevere just pushes him away. And I kind of love that there are women in his life that really let him have it. He deserves it. Because then he has the he talks yes. to his assistant <laughs> on the phone. He says to her, I want you to do I your am doing my job. fucking job. And she says, I am doing my fucking job. You need to yeah. get on the phone with this guy. I love that because he has these uh these strong women in his life and then he melts down mm. in the seminar. He gets back in there, how to fake oh, like yeah. you are nice and caring, and he is so pissed off and all these things and he just throws the table over and all these things that happen in there. The next time we see him is is uh, in the car, I believe. And so related to them, of course, then is Linda. We haven't even talked <laughs> about Julianne Moore. I know this is it's just so much in this. And OK, so for me, the the stuff with Linda that I find really powerful, 
my favorite scene with Linda in the whole movie is when shame she's on in you. the pharmacy. Yeah. Shame yeah. on you. She's getting the liquid morphine for Earl, which will end his pain, but also pretty much he'll mm-hmm. he'll just pretty much be gone. She's and she's getting this lecture. Pat from Healy, the by the way, love Pat Healy so much. I didn't Pat even Healy. recognize him. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like I said, these really, really small mm-hmm. parts in this movie that are just filled by these incredible actors. And there's so many. Yeah, like in the that. same way um, that Claudia is a character who looks like she's on the verge of tears the whole movie, Linda is just like this bundle of nerves <laughs> that I just love that yeah. the way she plays that. Because she's also a character that relates to that that line about you maybe don't the past the past is not done with you she she's so guilty yeah. about her past that it's it's causing her to be this I, I don't know how to describe her she's like just so frantic and she is and she's so sad she's on yeah. multiple antidepressants and all these things she says I come in here and you don't know me. And all of these things, and you lecture me, and I am surrounded by sickness, and you call me lady? (laughs) Shame on you. Shame on both of you. Don't call women lady. I hate that. You're judging me without knowing anything about me. That is what it comes down to. Strong, strong stuff here, boy. Wow. What exactly have wrong? You need all this stuff. Motherfucker. What? Motherfucker. You what are you fucking about? asshole. Who the fuck are you? Oh, look, lady, who the fuck do you think you are? I come in here. You don't know me. You don't know who I am, what my life is, and you have the balls, the indecency to ask me a question about my life. What you do? Don't you call me lady. I come in here. I give these things to you. You check. You make your phone calls. Look suspicious. Ask questions. I'm sick. I have sickness all around me, and you fucking ask me my life. What's wrong? I'm using death in your bed, in your house. Where's your fucking decency? And then I'm asking fucking questions. What's wrong? Suck my dick. That's what's wrong in you. You fucking call me lady. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on both of you. But the thing is, she's judging herself too. Like I said, she's she's guilty. She has so much guilt in her. Yeah the whole movie yeah in the next scene i mean she goes to the lawyer but confesses all of it has that whole conversation she says i married him for his money and i cheated on him all the time and mm-hmm. then i fell in love with him and i want to be cut out of his will because i don't want the money anymore it's like well if you do that it's going to go to frank yeah. no frank yeah. he has no son frank no frank doesn't get a dime my only problem with that, with the whole, uh, with Linda and Earl, is that I, I do believe what she's saying, that she does, even if she didn't before, that she does love him now. But it's hard, it's hard to see that when you don't really, you don't see them together enough to get that sense. No. You get like, you get like a scene. You see them just yeah. momentarily. You get like one little scene with them yeah. together. And I, I just kind of wish there was a little bit mm-hmm. more of them together for, for that point to really hit home about her character otherwise it feels kind of like she's just saying that to absolve herself of of guilt like oh yeah maybe i do love him Uh, yeah maybe i don't then um okay so we're gonna have to skip back to the other side of the flower because we gotta (laughs) if if we're gonna end if we're gonna end this sequence we gotta end it with earl's speech so 
this section. So we got to go to Jim and Claudia. Jim and Claudia, Jim and Claudia is my favorite the, story in the movie. This part of the whole movie, yeah. I love that. You know, she's playing this Amy Mann song again. That's an Amy Mann song. Super loud. Okay. It's just yeah. It's called it's called uh, Momentum. And playing as loud as hell. And I remember seeing it in the movie theater because, I mean, obviously I can't control the volume in the movie theater. And it's just, it's <laughs> loud. It's just pounding for so long. And she's cleaning up all her cocaine <laughs> and all this stuff. She's trying to get her house cleaned up because there's a cop at the door. And the moment she opens the door and it just pushes in on John C. Riley's face is so precious and the look on his face is is like oh he is thunderstruck by her instantly they continue to have the conversation while the music is playing really loud like she doesn't even think to go and turn it down until he tells her to it's just that's a funny little moment and then he drops the night it's a run down the stairs (laughs) down the stairs okay you're going to damage your ears at all (laughs) Yes. I love everything. I love everything so about their about... interactions. I love the whole thing where she makes yes. coffee for him it's and he drinks it. Terrible. And, and he, the look on his face. And also for a movie that has so much that is all this fluid movement of the camera and stuff like that. The scene in the kitchen where she's making the mm, coffee is just a static camera. And, it, and they're yeah. walking in and out of the room and... The way that he talks to her in that scene, though, it's it's a little, like, weird and, and condescending in a way. <laughs> like, you're going to damage your ears if you listen to music that loud. But uh, also, I just kind of saw it as the whole thing with his character, like we said before, is that he is trying to be a good person and help people. That's where yes. that's really coming from. And it's just, I would say he's so earnest is probably the main character trait i would give him and it's it's yeah. so sweet it's like when you listen to him like normally if someone would say something like that to me i would be like would you shut up you're patronizing me really bad right I now know. but the way he's the way he says it is like i don't know it it works it's so funny he's just trying to he's like all right yeah. i gotta do my job well the thing is i honestly think that paul thomas anderson said here's your character make shit up <laughs> because the way he delivers it the way he says it just sounds so John C. Riley to me. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I, that's one of the things that I like so much because it seems like so much of the real John C. Riley is infused into that character. I mean, it was clearly written specifically for him. I mean, he had been in every movie that PTA had made up to that point. Mm. You know, he was the only one. Well, and and so so was Philip Baker Hall. Both of them because they were both in uh, Hard Eight. Mm-hmm. I never saw that one. And Boogie Nights. There's like a, this big lull in the conversation. He's still hanging out and she starts clicking her jaw. <laughs> they call it TMJ. Like, Ugh, why, why don't they jaw. just call it <laughs> clicking jaw? That's a line that I quote regularly <laughs> to my wife. I love the whole thing where he walks out the door and she closes the door and she just sort of leans mm-hmm. against the door. Yeah. Because she doesn't want him to go. And then he comes back and it's like, I- I've been one to ask you for a date since I first came here and she asks is it illegal he says well sort of (laughs) then i want to do it (laughs) but he acknowledges that it is a bit of a uh, yeah it's kind of a no definitely a no-no he's definitely got some kind of yeah he's breaking his rules there's a there's a power dynamic that he recognizes and he says Mm. like this is probably totally wrong but she she sees it too and she's okay with it which is why it's it's okay <laughs> yeah the way it's handled is not creepy yeah to me i i mean i'm obviously not not a a, a lady um don't who call has been ladies. in this situation <laughs> huh? yeah don't call, don't call me lady i'm not a woman so i don't know um what that feels like and my wife 
does and has told me and <laughs> has experienced that. She used to switch a ring from her right hand to her left to make people think she was married Yeah, uh, be- before she was. And um, yeah, it didn't always matter. It was lots of that sort of stuff. Anyway, so I see that. But the way that it's done in this movie, I think it's really delicate. Yeah. I think I think it's he tries to handle it really delicately. Because you don't want people to think Jim's a creep. No. <laughs> you really don't. And I don't think he comes across like one. No. And it could be if it was played wrong. They both they um, both recognize it and mm-hmm. agree together that they're okay with it. I think. Yeah. Which is yeah. good. Super interesting also, the names there. His name is Jim and her father's name is Jimmy. Just saying. Jim and Jimmy. Yes, Jim that's Jimmy. the same thing that I noticed. And the thing is, I had never thought about that before. Really? That's the first thing that clicked in my mind. I was like, oh, they mm-hmm. have the same name. That's got to be rough for her, you know? Exactly. And I think that is an important part of her character. And it's yeah. a very deliberate decision, clearly. Oh, yeah. Because why? Why would you have you could name, name any, You can name yeah. your characters any names you want. Yeah. And so to name him Jim. That's a very obvious decision, yes. So the whole thing with Jim losing his gun is also kind of interesting because he feels like a failure. He starts saying, you know, dear God, just let me find, help me find the gun. You know, he actually starts praying in tears mm-hmm. to be able to find the gun. And it's another thing. His, it's really another thing about his character just wanting to do good, do a good job. He wants to be good at his job and he wants to mm-hmm. help people. And you saw that also in an earlier scene when they were, guy, what's her name? When the other police are there interviewing in the apartment where the, he found the body. Yeah, he tries to speak up and they don't he, let him. They're giving all the information. And he's just in the background. It's like, hey, he was the first one here on the scene. Shouldn't he be seeing? And they're not yeah. even trying to listen to him at all. He feels insignificant. Yeah. And, you know, I very much get that even more now than I did when I originally saw this. All the times that he's talking to himself in, yeah. in the car. He feels very insignificant and lonely. Clearly. Yeah. Those scenes are all just kind of gut-wrenching and... They hit mm-hmm. close to home. I mean, just this idea of talking to yourself. I don't talk to myself out loud, but I certainly do the inner monologue thing. Oh, my God. You know? <laughs> I live um, alone. Come on. <laughs> I know. I mean, and for me, it's not quite the same. Obviously, I have a wife and I have a family, but it still, I find myself, and my wife has told me the same thing. You know, even with our pleasant situation, <laughs> there's definitely loneliness still, yeah. you know? This doesn't go away uh, necessarily because another person is there all the time, you know. It would help, though. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. And I'm... I'm Like, I just texted you the other day. I was like, I, I just realized yesterday. I was like, wow. It's like 8 o'clock. I just, I just realized, like, I have not spoken to another human being all day. Which, it's it happens, you know, like, on your days off from work when you just stay home and you chill out. But for some reason, like, it really, really got to me. Yeah. And I was like, that that sucks. And I just felt so lonely. And I was just like, so, well, yeah, I, I was, if you didn't live 2,000 miles away, come on over and hang with us. Yeah. Because my wife has often spoken about, I just want a friend that yeah. I can talk to. And it's like, yes, I love you, Brian, but you're also not a woman. You're right. also, right. Uh, you're always here. Um We've talked about everything. <laughs> That's yeah. not. But, you know, obviously there are those things that are needs mm-hmm. of friends and interactions and anyone. <laughs> and yeah. I get it. And it's powerful in this movie. It's funny because this is the second movie I've had in my forever favorites about loneliness. 
Taxi driver is a, yeah. is a foreign version of loneliness. It's something that most of us won't experience, you know, where we're overtaken by yeah. something. And yeah. this is a very close it's more kind real. of loneliness. This is yeah. the kind of loneliness that most people will experience and be able to yeah. relate to. Um, and it's really well done. And again, I mean, this is entirely about characters. Yeah, that's why I, I related the most to both Jim and Claudia. Yes. In a way. Not with her, like, addiction problems, but just, we'll get into her. <laughs> yeah. This episode has gone almost as long as the movie Magnolia. As Magnolia. So far, <laughs> uh, this recording has. Um, we'll get there. But this is where the really powerful thing. Earl talking to Phil about Lily, his wife, who has died. So this is Frank's mother Frank's that he's mother. talking about. Yeah. And I want to drop a clip from this in there if we can find one. I don't know what part of it to do, though. Because this whole monologue. The whole thing about regret. Well, even before that, where he talks about his wife. And it's just so sweet mm-hmm. and weird. Some of these talks about her childbearing hips. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> which is just sort of funny, weird, old-fashioned, old guy right. thing to say, right? <laughs> but then he says, and I cheated on her. And I cheated on her, yeah. Over and over and over again because I wanted to be a man. And I didn't want her to be a woman. Because she was a strong, beautiful, intelligent everything that she was at that moment you realize oh my god frank has become him okay maybe he i didn't want, pay as much he, attention to that then i never I, thought of it that way before though because I, I wondered so much about frank i was like okay if the true story was that he had to watch his mother die and his father abandoned him why did he turn into this Exactly. I know. And it's again, it's that whole it. idea that it's bringing on the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children. That idea, he has he become been, his father become in a way. T- he should. I should. But he has to numb the pain. As I think he's trying to figure out how to numb the pain that he felt. And Whatever. his <laughs> own. And it, do, it doesn't make sense. But people react in different sense. ways, though. Yeah. People grieve in ways that are unhealthy all the time. It's unhealthy, and, and I also just feel like it's not honoring his mother. No, not at all, of course. But this whole idea of the, the line that says, I wanted to be a man, mm-hmm. and he's he not realizing that's not what a man is. But that was Frank's model of what a man was. Yeah, it's where a lot of men go wrong in the, yeah. in the world. <laughs> Having the wrong model of what a man is, what a man right. should be. Right. And, you know, me as a father of boys and of a daughter as well, I want to model for them and I try to be, you know, more like Jim (laughs) than like any of the other men in this movie. Frankly, except maybe for Phil. Phil's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, And to be a good, kind man, you know, so hopefully my sons will want to be that kind of a person, too. I I don't know who my sons or or my daughter are going to grow to love uh, in the future. But, you Mm -hmm. know, if my daughter does get married to a man to see something of how she should be treated by a man, too. Yes. You want to be That's a good example hope. for I, what she should look for. Yeah, yes. exactly. And, you know, to treat my wife in these ways, too. And I have not been perfect, of course. You know, I've n- never cheated on my wife. That's not what I'm trying to say. But <laughs> there are all these things about regret, that whole mm-hmm. speech about regret, the goddamn regret, you know, of how I treated my wife yeah. Or my children at whatever time. And this is where it really got into my gut. Is where he says, 
And don't you ever... Uh, okay, there are a couple of things that he says yes. here. He says, <laughs> this one, this really got to me, too. Because this is uh, the first time I've heard it said like this. And I was yeah. like, no, that's that's right. I loved her so. She knew what I did. She knew all the fucking stupid things I'd done. But the love was stronger than anything you can think of. The goddamn regret. The goddamn regret. And I'll die. Now I'll die. And I'll tell you what, uh, the biggest regret of my life I let my love go. What did I do? I'm 65 years old. And I'm ashamed. A million years ago, the fucking regret and guilt, these things don't let anyone ever say to you, you shouldn't regret anything. Don't do that. Don't. You regret what you fucking want. Use that. Use that. Use that regret for anything, any way you want. You can use it, okay? Oh. Oh, good. Because what, what do you always hear? What have you always heard your whole life? No regrets, right? No regrets. It's like, don't, don't, don't have let any anyone tell you not to regret anything. Regret what you want and use it. Yes. That, that is, is so much. Right. That is so much more true than yeah. have no regrets. Yes. You can have regrets about things. You can feel bad about things that you have done in your past, but you can grow from it. But to say you have no regrets, yeah. that's dishonest. No, it like. is dishonest. And the thing is, that whole speech is just, it's a gut punch. Oh, yeah, that really And it is. Me. Especially is, that part. It is the longest speech in the movie, by far. The longest monologue in the movie, by far. And it's everything that the movie is about mm-hmm. in so many ways. I think so. And this sequence, he's giving this speech, and it, it's not scored. So much of this movie is scored. There's so much music going on all the time. During the speech, there's not. You hear the right, rain. There is. That's right. Yeah, you hear the rain. His monologue is the score for what you see on on the screen. Mm-hmm. As everyone is coming home, um, Claudia is getting ready for a date. Jim's getting ready for his date. Donnie is getting ready to break into his boss's business. Uh, it, Stanley is breaking into the library. Jimmy's being brought home, you know, obviously ill, you know, and it's just pouring down rain and all of this. And he's it's underscored with this speech. The next thing you see is Claudia sitting there. She said mm-hmm. she just whispers it. She says, oh, you're so stupid. And then she leans over and takes a line of coke. Yeah. Same thing that Donnie says, too. That's right. Earlier. I used to be smart, yeah. but now I'm stupid. I'm stupid. <laughs> now I'm just stupid. He says it again later, too. Yeah. But then the chords of Wise Up started, and I just burst into tears. It wasn't even the words that hadn't even started yet. <laughs> yeah. And the chords just hit me because they were the punctuation of that whole speech. 
Yeah. And the wise up scene should not work. There is nothing about that scene that should work. I, I told you I'd seen this before in something else. So it, it totally worked for me. Yeah. And the thing is when I saw it, but it did. It did though. It does even, work. even from the first time I saw it. But this time it hit me just harder than it ever has before. I was an absolute wreck watching this. And maybe that's why I haven't watched the movie in a while because I knew it would do this to me. Probably even worse than it did the first time you saw it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like we were talking about, every line that each character says is so perfect for that character. Yep. Absolutely relates to them in some way. Well, I mean, it's appropriate that Claudia, you know, snorts a line of coke before she says it's not what you thought when you first began it. Mm -hmm. No. And then Jimmy says, you're sure there's a cure the whole thing with Linda saying, prepare a list of what you need before you sign away the deed, which is, yes. you know, getting her name removed from the will and all these yeah. things. And and Frank is just singing, it's not going to stop till you wise up, which is the chorus of the song. And then it's not going to stop. And Stanley's is the last one. So just give up oh, in God. that beautiful <laughs> angelic voice. Yeah. And you're just like, for a little kid to say, just give up, is heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking, yeah. Especially in context with what you've seen from his character. Mm-hmm. The, your heart has already been broken by this kid. Yeah. And to hear him say that is just kind of like, I, I, I was scared of where the movie was going when I saw that. Anyway, you know? With what would happen with, to Stanley? In terms of Stanley? Yeah. yeah. It, it is scary, especially because other characters contemplate suicide yes. and things like that. And, oh, yeah. and you're just like, oh, God, what's going to happen? I honestly um, thought that because I was, I was like, well. Yeah, that would have been says, dark. Oh, I know. <laughs> <That one>. I know. <laughs> I'm not but sure if so, my, this movie so would be a forever favorite. He's so yeah. convincing and how yeah. melancholy he is when he says that line. It just got me. And, and I he was just. Like, oh, God, I hope. I just was like, yeah. oh, God, I hope Stanley is OK at the end of this. <laughs> And he just stares into space and you see, and it's so beautiful. It's dark and, and all you see is like the rain in this room, just like ca- the reflections of the rain on the windows cascading down the room. And it's like the whole world is covered in tears. As he said before, he's in his own little like safe place in the he's library. In the library, yeah. Yeah. He has kind of mentioned that before that that's where he goes. He like, instead of having class, he just goes and has his own study. Mm-hmm. You kind of, you see it as like, it's his own, it's his place where he can be alone and be away from the pressure yeah. of everything. And yeah. he's kind of in his little safe place. He's there. in a cocoon. He says there. that he's in a little yeah. cocoon of books. I, I feel that, you know? Oh, I do too. I, <laughs> I can't blame him, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I think more than anything, that sequence, and it doesn't work without everything that's before and after it, of course, but for Mm -hmm. me, more than anything, that sequence is the wise up scene is why this movie has never left me. It's why it is genuinely a forever favorite for me. It's why I have the poster of it on my wall here. You know, this is, it's just everything about it is so powerful. And again, it shouldn't work. Um, I don't know about that. I see what you mean, but I'm I'm totally okay with movies doing with weird. In a movie like this that is dramatic and earthbound, it shouldn't necessarily work. But also it prepares you for, again, that whole idea. These things happen. Come with (laughs) me. It happens. 
they could all be in the same place and that song comes on the radio and they all know it and they're all singing along. That it could be, happen. yeah. You that know, could be that's exactly not, what's happening. That really doesn't seem to be what's happening. It seems to be like it's not coming from a source somewhere except for yeah. God. Right. You know, or, or something, you know. <laughs> it's it's very interesting. Okay, then then uh, we get into this third part. The mood shifts quite a bit. It lightens. It feels lighter after that. A bit. Um, to me, because the rain stops. All the lights come on in the city. The rain stops way too suddenly. Really it's, creepy way. <laughs> it really stops, though. It completely stops. <laughs> and again, you have graffiti uh, all over that says Exodus 8-2. And you've got yes. uh, the signs that say Exodus 8-2. I mean, it's just like, read this verse is practically what PTA is saying. It does feel really light in the scene. Because like I said before to you about the whole frantic energy of that one part where that, that music plays for so long. Mm-hmm. That same score plays for so long. I was like, after a while, I was like, this has gone on for a really long time. Well, all the characters are like running around. They're running around the TV yeah, studio yeah. and all this stuff. I was like, this is still technically like the same scene almost, yeah. like quote unquote, because that score is playing. And yeah, once the rain stops, it does feel like a weight has been lifted it, at least off of the characters and off of the viewer because it's like... Yeah been very intense up until now well here's the thing everyone sort of arrives somewhere it seems like yes you know you have frank showing up at earl's house if any of those fucking dogs come near me another way to hate him yeah if any of those fucking dogs come near me i will kill i will drop kick it or something like that yeah well i mean the whole thing starts out with donnie going all right yo yo go 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 he's putting on his hat so let's go let's go Mm -hmm. let's go you know that whole thing that he does and then Frank arrives at Earl's. You have Jim comes and picks up Claudia. The kid finds Linda in the car. Jimmy is comes home to Rose. He gives him a cigarette that he lights, but he doesn't actually inhale it. He puts it up to his mouth and does the same thing that Earl does earlier, just opens his mouth yeah. and puts it down. It's such a weird detail. It's because there's an earlier part where Phil gives Earl an unlit cigarette and he puts it up to his face. He opens his mouth and puts it down. Without putting it in his mouth, in either case, it's it's sort of this weird thing that happens. I think it's supposed weird. to equate Earl to Jimmy a little bit. I think so. Because they, I mean, they both have cancer. They both have this whole thing, and then yeah, it's one of those weird weird things that I don't really entirely get, but I think is interesting. It could be one of those like that yeah. uh, they, they both quit. It's a habit. Yeah, that's it's the way they they deal with it. Not actually inhaling, mm-hmm. but just having it there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, we might as well get into it with Jimmy Gator. Um, this is where he confesses to Rose first that he cheated on her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, I I know. It's like, I know. She's, yeah. like she's like, I know. She's not mad. She's She says, well, I am mad, but I'm not. You know, if that makes any sense. I think Melinda Dillon plays this so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously they don't have many scenes together. But, I mean, this would be a six-hour movie if it kind of had all of these things. (laughs) And in a weird way, some of it could go on. And then he says, she asks him, why do you and Claudia not get along? Or what happened between you and Claudia? Something like that. And he says, I don't know. And she goes, yeah, you do. What's, what's, What's going on there? And he says, I think this is what I'm saying what he says. Maybe a trigger warning is due. 
if you haven't if you've gotten with us this far you've probably already seen the movie and you already know <laughs> okay then he says i think she thinks i might have molested her mm-hmm. and melinda dillon as rose is just like you don't get off that easy he said did you and she says i don't know and she's just like yes you do the way she delivers that yeah is really or the way she even asks him before that yeah she knows she knows it's been on her mind she's like mm-hmm. you know exactly what i'm trying to ask you yeah she gives him a chance to admit it and she ends the scene you deserve to die alone I for alone. what yeah. you've done he's the one character in this movie where forgiveness is not an option mm-hmm. because claudia does not need to forgive him yeah to be free she, have to. she does not need to forgive him to be free Whereas some of these characters, I think that Frank needs to forgive Earl to, f- to be free. Mm-hmm. I think that I think so. um, Linda needs to forgive Frank to be free, perhaps. She needs to forgive herself. She needs to forgive herself more than anything. But Claudia is told, and that character is given the freedom apart from that. And I think that is so smart and so well done on the yeah. part of PTA for this. Yeah. She she does not. There's a one person yeah. that doesn't have to forgive. Yeah. It is Claudia. Yes. That's right. And and he doesn't even really deserve forgiveness for that. No, and he's going to try and kill himself to get the yeah, easy way take out. The easy way out. Yeah. That's what I hate about the whole scene of Rose asking him that is yeah, she is giving him the chance to confess before he says anything. It may sound may sound like he does, but he's not. He's not. No, 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 no. He's, he's not. saying he's saying I think she thinks. Yeah. That I did this again. Not that, but that's I so smartly written because you. So... It's 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 what Jimmy needs to be hated at the end of the movie. Yeah. And he does every weaselly manipulative move that he possibly that's, that's can. That's so manipulative. That is incredibly manipulative line. Yeah. That he says there. Yeah, and I think it's really. Because uh, Philip Baker Hall is obviously not this guy. And for him to yeah. take on this role is pretty brave, frankly. Um, yeah. be- even though he plays such a slimy coward. Is it in the same scene where he, he says something about when he went to go talk to her that she- I was like, oh, she was going crazy, saying crazy stuff. Yeah. And it's like, nah. Well, it's like, and- you haven't learned shit. You're not even thinking about well and at the uh, end of the movie i find it powerful that rose is like i am so sorry claudia she goes to her daughter is the first thing she does after this whole thing with with jimmy and she's like forget it i'm done with that guy and mm-hmm. i wasted time away from my daughter who needed me because of this man and i won't do that again but she had the question in her mind she before did. She, she asked did. it. And she goes to Claudia, I think, partially seeking. She's on the, her way to Claudia to see if there's any way that they can work it out. I think that's what she's doing. Because yeah. she knows that she's wrong, too. Oh, yeah. She's wrong. In she had some level. And pretty complicity important in some way. way. Yeah. And we don't know what to what extent she knew of anything. I mean, she f- suspected, clearly. Yeah. So anyway, whew. she suspected clearly and sided with her husband instead of her daughter. Yeah. Which, yeah, that's tough to reconcile. Absolutely. Anyway. Donnie, <laughs> he, uh, he it's pretty simple what happens with him. He goes in, he actually takes the money out of the safe. And then he all that we really need to know for the plot is that he breaks his key off in the door as he's leaving. <laughs> and then he has this moment of clarity is like, you're so stupid. Stupid, yeah. stupid, stupid. Again, you know, that whole thing with him. 
And so he's heading back to, I think we should save the climax. Um, okay. For, <laughs> I was like, you're, take, take, you're talking around take, something take, here. <laughs> take him up to the climax and then what all that happens. So he take, he's on his way to take the money back. Okay, great. Frank and Earl, good Lord. That is just, <laughs> he just sits down. He sits right down next to him and says, you know, it's like it's going to be this heart-to-heart moment. And he says, you prick, mm-hmm. is the first words that come out of the sound. And then this whole thing where he's like, cocksucker. And he just starts cursing at his father, yeah. who can't hear him because he's on the liquid morphine. Morphine, yeah, he's out of it. And he says, I'm not going to cry for you. Then he sniffles <laughs> right after that. And That's true. Yeah. And he just starts saying, don't go away, you fucking asshole. Don't go away, you fucking asshole. <laughs> it's so powerful because, yeah. I mean, Earl really does want to... He has admitted in no uncertain terms how wrong he was to leave Frank to watch his mother die. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> that was... <laughs> that so whole wrong. regret speech is all about that. And so he just wants to have one moment with his son to say that you were right and I was a fucking asshole. And you have every right to hate me and you don't need to forgive me. But maybe Frank does in does. some way. And Linda's whole thing is she's being taken to the hospital. I mean, there's not much going on there. The charming one, of course, is the date. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> Jim and Claudia. Yeah. Um, These two. And Stanley's just in the library. Jim and Claudia on their date is the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and again, he, he, this whole thing is like, do you just get through all the piss and shit and lies? Is that, and his response is, oh, wow. Piss and shit, huh? <laughs> Pretty strong really? language you use there. It's that whole thing where he can't hear her. Then he's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so stupid. Why, why did I even say that? That was dumb. You know? That made me feel so bad. I was like, God, <laughs> I cuss all the time. Is this what guys think of me? No, no. I don't care. Well, here's the, th- here's <laughs> the thing. You know, uh, like I said, sometimes someone who is devoted. Uh, this is one of the things I also like about this movie. He's a devoted religious person. Per- person? Person. Uh, person. But he's <laughs> not. <getting> late. <laughs> he is not a caricature at all. He's uh, handled very affectionately, and that's not always the case in Hollywood movies. I mean, how often have religious people turned out to be either hypocrites or the Mm -hmm. villain or this or that all the time? And it's refreshing to see that, especially to me. I mean, I've mentioned before on the show that, yeah, I mean, I consider myself a, a Christian, you know, but unfortunately, in this day and age, that has a connotation that is quite negative. So I prefer not to use the term. I am a person who believes in Jesus and person, person of, of faith, faith, I guess, is a better word, because there is so often this this stereotypical image that is put on people. And, and I love that Jim is not that. But in this moment, that was a hundred percent me where I couldn't hear someone because, oh, you've got this or that, or you've got, you're speaking this way. And this is not the case for me anymore at all, by the way, this was me at 21. Okay. When I saw this, this okay. is not me now, but there was that time where, but Jim helped me to work through some of that, to be honest, to be able to hear people 
to really hear people and really listen to them and not have it be this legalistic, I guess you could say, by the book kind of thing with people, but to yeah. really connect with people. Really listen to what they're saying and not just the words yeah. that they're saying. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, how many times have I cursed in this podcast today? I'm so Thank you. proud of you. Well, you fuck said yeah. Fuck. You fuck said fuck yeah. so many. I probably shouldn't say that too loud. Yes. My kids are upstairs. But I love it. They've heard, they've heard me say it too. So <laughs> anyway, um, because it's it's not the words necessarily all the time. It's, it's what is the heart behind it, you know? It's what behind it, yeah. yeah. That's one of the things I just love about this. And and he just immediately sees, wait a minute, I am so blind here. Why am I allowing myself to be blinded? Because she looks, she looks so sad and offended when, when he says that. He's like, oh my God, do you hate me now? You know, because I curse. And he realizes, yeah, the, the effect that has on her. And he's like, that's, yeah, that's really dumb. Why do I even think that? <laughs> that's, a, that's a perfect moment. Yeah. And she's so nervous and he's so nervous. And, They're so nervous. <laughs> and she says, you know, I'm really nervous that you're going to hate me, that you'll find stuff out about me. It's like, and then he says, I lost my gun today because mm-hmm. it's been on my mind. I'm a laughing, laughing stock of a lot of people. And then he goes on to say, I won't judge you. I know I can do that sometimes. But I won't with you. And all this stuff says, you want to kiss me, Jim? Yes, I do. And I love that part. <laughs> yes. Isn't that the most? It's like, and then, then of course, as saying. soon as they break up from the kiss, she sits down and says, now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And it's just like, what? 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 It's so sad because it's like she seems to feel that she is somehow undeserving of love. She's... And she's unworthy and deserving of love. Which is a completely normal, like, trauma response. It is. That she has. It is. Long-term trauma response is to feel unloved and to feel damaged in some way and that no one would ever want to be with you. Sure. I felt that. Yeah, me too. And I think that's why I have a tear in the corner of my eye right now, just talking Mm -hmm. about this movie. But um, (laughs) good God, this movie gets to me. Um, I know. (laughs) It really gets to me. Um, I didn't. I really did not think that it it would. I didn't remember mm-hmm. anything about this movie except for the frogs, like I said before. Which is but where then, we're at now in the story <laughs> yeah. because now we Just encounter like, all talking of, about it and seeing yeah. and talking to you about it before and talking about it now. I'm like, I'm glad this was your favorite. I'm glad I I watched this again. Oh, I man. never would have watched this again. I think. Oh really? Oh wow. Yeah. I'm. Because I just remember like just not connecting to it at all. It was just the time of my life. And now, God, with, especially with life experiences, I'm completely connecting to more than one of the characters. And I think we feel this in a weird way with the pandemic being caught in our own little pods here. Mm-hmm. It's sort of exacerbated sure. all of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I also love, I think that Jim really would be perfect for Claudia. Um, I do think it would be, it'll be a little bit of a shock to him because he seems like such yes. a, like, such an innocent it'll be such a shock it will think, be and the thing really is really getting really getting into her trouble is because she's not just dealing with you know, she's dealing with addiction yeah and sexual abuse trauma i yeah. mean my god well i dated this girl in high school and i mean she wasn't on the level of claudia because she was much younger but she might as well have been for for me at that age at 18 when i when i dated this girl or 17 when i dated this girl cuz she was just so much more world weary than i was and so i really got jim and i got claudia because i had had some of that experience i got that right away 
Not that people who have issues like that are no, 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 no. That's not what I'm trying to imply just, at all. That's what I'm trying to say either. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I mean. No, that's not what I'm trying to say at all. I mean, but that it it, it can be it can be a lot. It's an ongoing yeah. difficult thing. For me, as a relative innocent, and and her not being, it was just like oh, right. I, oh, 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 you know. But you know, the thing <laughs> is, I thought I was in love. I probably wasn't, but I really I adored this girl. You know, so there was, it was sort of my first, my first love, you know, kind of thing. So it didn't matter. It just sort of, it, it was, it was part of what made her who she was. And I loved her. I, or at least I thought I did. When you're 17, everything's love, right? It's something different than that. But it was really genuine affection and care for this person. And I felt like there was a good relationship while it lasted, you know, so, but I kind of got the whole Jim Claudia dynamic there. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry, I, I totally that... talked right over you that whole time. So please. <laughs> no, I just want to say that she has things to work through in her life. But I think that Jim is perfect for her in that way. Even though, he, yeah, he does seem like such an innocent, like he's never actually had to confront stuff like that before. He has a lot of love in his heart for her. My name is Donnie like Smith, says, and I have like lots Donnie of love says, to give. Yes. And I really think Jim really, think, really does have a lot of love I to give. I think Jim has a lot of love to give. And he hasn't found anybody that's willing to to accept him either. Yeah, and there's a brief and all, mention. And all, and all of whatever he's been through in yeah, his life, you know? because there's a brief mention of his marriage. He just yeah. says, I haven't been on a date since I was married. And you're just kind of yeah. like, that's it. That's all you know about it. That's enough, though. And it, it's it's all you need. But it's, it's one of those things where you go, oh, wait, what's that story? And it's I love that, though, that it leaves you to sort of ponder those things. But anyway, we're at the frogs. And the frogs okay. yes. are, what do, you, what do you think of the frogs? I don't know. <laughs> it's obviously, okay, it's obviously a biblical yeah. reference. I think it's the intervention of providence. I think that's what it is. Okay. I think it's some, it's... Saying um, the way that Philip Seymour Hoffman described it, he said, I think the frogs are obvious. This was on inside the actor's studio. He (laughs) says, I think it's just as if nature or God or something is just saying enough. Stop it. And it's an interesting scene because, you know, Donnie gets hit in the face with a frog and he cracks his teeth. Yes, because at the same um, time that the frogs are happening, all of these coincidences. Yeah. Like they were talking about at the beginning of the movie happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's Jim runs into Donnie and helps him. Also, uh, doesn't the ambulance that Linda is in, doesn't it crash right in front of the emergency room? Of the emergency room. room. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, and then I don't um, know what that means though. (laughs) Jimmy, Jimmy tries to shoot himself and a frog frog falls through like, like, like the skylight thing or whatever. This little tiny, a really tiny skylight. Yeah. Yeah, Not a big one. Yeah. And, and it breaks open and falls. And it's like, no, you don't get to do that. Yes. You don't get the easy out, buddy. You have to die alone, just like your wife yeah. said. You know? I, yeah, I love that. It's like, no, don't kill yourself. But it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. You don't get to do that. You I love that. You don't get to do that. Then Frank and, and Earl are, are just sort of like, because that's when Earl wakes up. Yeah. When the frogs the sound, fall. The sound of the frogs. The sound of the frogs Earl wake him up. up and he sees Frank just before he dies. Just for a second. Just yeah. for a second. But it's it's so beautiful. And, 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 mm-hmm. and then you have Phil saying, what everyone in the audience is thinking. <laughs> he says, why are there frogs falling from the sky? Why are there frogs falling from the sky? <laughs> and seeing this for the I'm so first happy. time. I'm so happy somebody said it, though. I know. That's so That's so perfect. It just adds to the comedy. Mm-hmm. 
and kind of lightens the tension it, a little bit. It lightens the tension a little bit. And because Jim almost gets in an accident because uh, mm-hmm. because these frogs falling out his window. He's actually the first one to experience He's the first that. one to get a frog. Yeah, yeah, and that makes me jump every time when the frog hits. <laughs> They're obviously like mechanical or something, but it's gross and it's weird and it's... They're slimy. And... They're slipping all over the place, and and the cars are sliding. And Rose sort of runs into. She crashes her car, I think, like into some. She, yeah, she crashes her car in front of Claudia's in apartment. in front of Claudia's apartment. But then she she just immediately just runs up and is like, "Where's my daughter? Are you okay? Are you okay?" And they're just kind of holding mm-hmm. each other. But I remember when that first started, when that first happened, and the frogs started falling behind Claudia. Because everyone just started sitting up in the theater. Because people had just sort of relaxed into the whole thing. were just kind of laying back. I mean, it's a long movie, obviously. As soon as the mm. frog started, people started sitting up. <laughs> you started hearing these chuckles. Like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> you know? And then, <laughs> but, but then, and then it goes in on the painting in Claudia's room that says, but it did happen. Then, yes. And you have uh, Stanley saying, just, these things happen. The thing with the, yeah, it was the thing with the coincidences. It yeah. seems fake but these things happen yeah rains of animals have happened <laughs> yeah they have it's like there's a there's a all sorts of things like fish and stuff like that because like hurricanes yeah. have picked them up offshore and water water spouts of weird things yeah. yeah and then the narrator takes over again i think it's ricky J. actually that might be the narrator i believe i'm not okay. positive about that but and he ends it with and so there was the hanging of three men. There's the the other stories that happened um, at the beginning of the movie. And then it says, and the book says, we may be through with the past, but the past ain't through past. with us. This closing moment here where the song starts, it's Save Me, again, by Amy Mann. And the, this is the only one that she wrote for the movie. Everything else preexisted. Just that scene where Jim goes in and sits on her bed and... And obviously her mom's still there. They show that Rose is just sort of out of frame. And she's left the room, I think. And he's just talking to her. And you just get the tiniest snippets of it. And I honestly think that song is sung from Claudia's perspective. Because she says, you look like a perfect fit for a girl in need of a tourniquet. No, I didn't catch the lyrics, but yeah, that's perfect The lyrics are really good. Read the lyrics if you get a chance. But Jim ends it because he's doing his monologue again. And you hear the dogs barking outside his window. He says, sometimes it's, it's hard to do the right thing. And that's when he decides he's going to go to Claudia. And you just get little bits of these things that he says. He says, you're a good and beautiful person. And then it sort of fades out. Then you hear again. Next thing he says, I want to be with you. And he says, pretty much, please be with me. And then the sort of guitar riff comes in and she smiles for the first time in the movie. Looks right in camera and smiles. Right in camera. And smiles. And it ends. And it is just perfect to me. Yeah. And I just get chills. And because she is finally, she encapsulates that freedom. She's like, the chains are broken or something. It's almost this look of freedom, almost like she's, you know, Chief Bromden, you know, smashing the the thing through the window at the end of Cuckoo's Nest and running for the hills, you know? Yeah. It's powerful. And I find this movie to be nearly perfect. And I just like it more every time I see it. Right now, this is my favorite movie of all time. So today... This is my favorite movie of all time right now because <laughs> it, it sounds like it's it. <laughs> just incredible. And I know I put two more above it, but this is the one for me right now. Like I said, those slots move around. Yeah. So this is the one for me right now. 
Yeah, and I'm, like I said, I'm really glad that you picked this and that I got to watch this again because it didn't move me, I don't think, quite as emotionally some of the characters mm-hmm. did, especially Claudia and Jim. And I think maybe if I watched it even in a couple of days, if I was in a different headspace, I would feel a totally different about it, you know? Yeah. If I was feeling down about certain things, I think I would... There's so many different ideas going on that you can connect to whatever you're dealing with in your in your own life. Because like we were talking about in our text, there's certain like important lines that really just stick out to yeah. you. You know, the thing about your past, the thing about regrets, mm-hmm. thing about children, um, confusing so children with angels, angels <laughs> which I still that's probably my favorite one. I think that's so beautifully put yeah. the way that line is. And it's a really complex movie, but I I feel like I get it. Yeah, and I feel like I I do really love it too. Maybe it's one of my favorite. Maybe we'll just say this, this is my forever favorite too. <laughs> so I have to take, I, would... I have to take cuckoo. I need to replace cuckoo's nest. <laughs> I'll replace it with magnolia for now. Oh, <laughs> see, I love that idea. I love that idea. So anyway, I, I it was funny because you texted me a few days before and said I'm watching Magnolia, and then I didn't hear back because I was watching Magnolia. Because you were watching Magnolia, long. and I was and I didn't see any rating on Letterboxd or anything. I was like, oh god, did she hate it? And so oh, I was I didn't, so I? nervous about it, and I was nervous to watch it myself because I was afraid that I was going to not like it. Because I think the last one of the last things you said was I hate Tom Cruise's character. <laughs> It's like, well, yeah, you're kind of supposed to, I think, you know, and and then I just because I had I had remembered him as being a motivational speaker for some reason, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, oh no, wait, he's a fucking pickup artist. Uh-huh. Oh fuck him. Yeah, and and you're supposed. I to. think the only the only reason I didn't rate it on Letterbox, I think, was probably because I don't always do that for one movie. Already, already seen, I know, and so I was like, <laughs> but if I did, I would give it five stars. Oh. That's that's awesome so to go. hear. And there you go. <laughs> this movie just touches me deeply. And I'm so glad that we were able to discuss it. I want to thank our listeners for bearing with us through this. I hope you like Magnolia as much as we do. Because, boy, this is a marathon here. Oh, God. Looking at <laughs> the is, time. I think this is we, our longest. This by far. This is the longest ever. Yeah. Well, and guess what? I'm putting this one on you right now <laughs> to edit. That's fine. I am. I think that's fair. That is perfectly fair. When is this supposed to go live? I don't know. You don't have to. Uh, okay. I I can do it. I can do it. That's so long though. Yeah, we're at three and a half hours right now. Yeah. So hopefully I can trim it down a bit from there. But so we'll make our closing remarks real quick. Uh, did you have the a quickest. recommend that you wanted to share? Yeah, just quickly I have a recommend and then kind of one I think related to that. Really good movie. I'm sure I'm not the only one because so many people when I said I was watching this said how much they friggin' love this movie and I'm so with them. I watched The Straight Story. Oh yeah, it's Also so from good. 1999, David Lynch. Honestly, had no idea this was David Lynch. I think this was the first David Lynch movie I saw was, was Straight Story. Really? Mm-hmm. I got this from the library and I was like, I saw his name on it and I was like, oh, because I, I think I had heard of this movie before, but somehow I had not connected that it was David Lynch. I don't know. It was weird. But I love that it's so different, obviously, from his other movies, but I can still see him in it in a lot of shots. Oh, yeah. I love that. But yeah, totally love this movie. Beautiful, beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Love of uh, uh, Richard Farnsworth. Yeah, Richard Farnsworth. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely love that. And then I also would connect that to recommend. I haven't listened to them yet, but uh, 
Pure Cinema has done a great job on previous episodes like this, where they've done like a director series. They have one now on David Lynch, where they go through every movie in his filmography and, and pair it with something else. So yeah. I've loved the other series. I have not listened to the David Lynch ones yet because I actually haven't seen all of his movies. So I've seen I catch up. most of them, but I hadn't seen all of them. And what was weird, one of the things I know, realized from watching or watching from listening to those episodes, which I do recommend, I think they're among the best they've ever done. They're really oh, great. Yeah. And because Elric especially is so passionate about David Lynch as a filmmaker it really is palpable mm. but the only David Lynch movie I've seen more than once is Mulholland Drive I've seen a lot of them almost all of them but the only one I've seen more than once is that one so it just made me want to revisit I love Firewalk them. with me yes it's my favorite and I've watched all of Twin Peaks and I have seen Firewalk with me but again I've only seen them once and I really think they are the kinds of movies that do better as you watch them more I think as you really immerse yourself in the world of, of David Lynch I would also yeah. jointly recommend the David Lynch episodes of Pure Cinema because they yeah. are really good episodes and good. I'm yeah. going to recommend just something I've been watching on TV or on Hulu actually I just finished watching season two of The Dark Side of the Ring, and I don't know what it is about wrestling documentaries and movies and boxing movies and that sort of thing, but I really enjoy them. And these are really They're, good and powerful. They interest me the most. Yeah, and so of all the sort of sports movies, for some reason, these are the ones that have the most impact on me. And I'm not really sure that why that is, because I have never watched a wrestling match or a boxing match, but I just find them all fascinating. So interesting. So Dark Side of the Ring is really good. If maybe check out for a little bit less of a commitment, uh, check out the movie uh, Beyond the Mat first. It might give you a taste of more or less what this kind of is and that's just a movie that's a feature film or a documentary I should say that's really excellent that sort of got me interested in wanting to see these so um, yeah really interesting really and even if you don't know anything about wrestling they catch you up which I don't know anything about wrestling so it really <laughs> does a good job informing you of who these people are why they're a big deal what's these stories about and some of these things are really tragic uh, admittedly Oh, sure. And why Vince McMahon is not in jail, I have no idea. Uh, or how he can live with himself, uh, <laughs> how we, I have no idea. But after watching these documentaries, <laughs> at, least, at least from this perspective, it's like, I don't know with that guy. But anyway, <laughs> really interesting <laughs> stuff. Cool. Yeah, just a quick note about our next episode. Oh, right. We are going back to our one of our favorite topics. Movies about films. movies. Films about filmmaking, Brian. <laughs> but these aren't, well, I guess one of them is film. Well, they're, they, yeah, I guess they both, I guess they apply. I, on, I only watch films. You only I watch, watch I'm oh, just I see. So, so <laughs> you only watch Citizen trying. Kane. You don't watch Paddington 2. <laughs> or Tremors, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, that, no, that's what I've been titling the movies, or films about filmmaking. Yeah. And um, mm. this next uh, kind of subtopic underneath that that we're going to look into is just movies about watching movies. And so what is your pick for that episode? 
My pick is The Delightful, film by Joe Dante. I think it's actually probably my favorite Joe Dante film, which is saying something because I love Joe Dante. Um, But I think this is probably his best movie. I think so. My favorite might be something else, but I think this is his best movie, and that is Matinee, starring John Goodman in such an amazing role. (laughs) Oh, I'm I'm so so excited excited just to talk about John Goodman. (laughs) I could talk about John Goodman every week. I know. Anyway. Okay. Uh, what are you picking? My, my pick is something still kind of funny, but also super dark at some points. I'm going to pick Peter Bogdanovich's Targets from 1968. I am Starring a, Boris Karloff. I am such a huge fan of this movie, and I'm love targets is one i've sort of championed and love to talk about i've written about i love it and huge fan it's been years since i've seen it though so i'm like stoked to get back into it because i remember when i first watched it i was like oh my god there's so much going on in this movie it is it's so important too for it's just the uh, we'll get into it because like what happens in the movie is the same thing that happens in in real life in terms of changing cinematic um traditions you know like In in the movie, it's like uh, Boris Karloff is this old aging like horror actor. And, like yeah, things, oh, so like things ha- are moving. Uh-huh. Things are moving more into the realistic. It's really about the transition it's, from which is exactly what's happening in the horror. You know, yeah, the horror was changing from old gothic stuff to more realistic stuff. Yeah, starting in the early seventies. So nineteen sixty eight was the flashpoint yeah. year for that too, and and we'll yeah, get into that a little bit more. Such so su- so that's like a super interesting story in that in that way and. Mm-hmm. Boris Karloff, obviously, is amazing. This is uh, one of my three favorite Boris Karloff performances. But, hey, we'll talk about that next time. Okay. Okay. Real quick. So we're going to wrap it up. We're going to wrap it up. So uh, you can find me at Brian D. Kuyper on Twitter. And you can find me at Michelle in Egan. And you can find the show at Movie Life Pod. Please come and hang out. Hang out with us. Uh, Leave a rate or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, listening to us right now. Please and thank you. That would be awesome. Helps a lot. Really Really have been amazed by our download numbers and our interactions and we're like, this is awesome. Hey, Glad people are listening cool. and seem to be enjoying. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And what will happen next time, Brian? We'll s- okay. You want me to do it? You want me to? Okay. We'll see you later. We'll see you later, everyone. <laughs> You're supposed to know we're supposed to say we'll see you next time. Oh, I screwed it up. So we're going to edit edit that, out, edit, that out, edit that out. You're editing this. <laughs> oh, that's right. So set me up again. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? <laughs> Just leave all that in. Okay. We are going to see you next time. See you next time, folks. Bye. Bye.